What was he going to do? Beat I, you up? I actually think it is the Cork accent. I'm not going to lie. I, like, there is something about the Cork accent that makes it the most intimidating accent, accent of the 32 counties in Ireland, I think. OTB AM. Live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, bang on half past seven. You're very welcome along this Thursday morning. It's OTBAM. Jaron Shane with you all the way through until 10. If you'd like to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number. Uh, you can also leave a comment in the YouTube stream or you can get us at Off The Ball AM on Twitter. Shane, good morning to you. How are you? Morning, Jaron. How are things? This uh, Grand Prix this weekend is something you're particularly interested in because it might be the end of the season, really. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, it's... We we were so blessed last season with the with the finale, uh, albeit Lewis Hamilton was screwed over. Let's be honest. Um, but now, yeah, Max Verstappen is kind of he's, he's just run away with it. But to put it into context, like does that make the season boring in a way, or are they able to make it interesting enough? Like, I guess they can still make it interesting. There's still battles for the midfield, um, and then drivers who want to just win a race this season. Relegation battle, those essentially race for Europe. It's what we all do when Man City are 14 points clear. Yeah, we're like, you know, it's it's worth. <laughs> still pay attention no, no, honestly come back please keep honestly, watching honestly it's going to be good but they're, they're competing for. there's still three open seats for next year's grid so there's current drivers and drivers not in the grid at the minute who are all competing for these for these seats and the lucrative money involved as well so yeah I, I think it's still interesting but like only 16 drivers have ever been multiple world champions and Verstappen is about to become the 17th which shows the, the just the tiny group that he is about to enter and, and maybe how strong he is yeah okay um, I, there's always a sneaking suspicion, though, that the best car wins and that the best driver doesn't always win, and that's kind of difficult. I mean, yeah. But then you look at you look at Red Bull and Sergio Perez is in the same car as as Max Verstappen, and yet he's so much more dominant. So you have to look at talent. And yep. do they not just fix it so Verstappen wins and he gets all the good stuff and, you know, they experiment with your man's car and they're like, OK, well, Max is the champ, so sorry, yeah. buddy. There's probably a lot of that that happens in the garage that certainly Max gets the benefit of everything. And he's How much are they paying Max versus Perez? I actually don't know the difference. I must look it up, but, it, but it, it's certainly, not the same. No, it's not the same. So, no, so uh, there, there, there's always a favourite child in each, of the, in each of the F1 grids, I would imagine. The main point for the rest of the season is to try and build up hope that next year won't be the same? Yeah, yeah, and next year has the, the draw of Las Vegas as well a race on the strip which oh yeah are you going you know what I'm, I'm tempted to go although being in Vegas earlier in the summer broke my soul and my finances so it's a, it's the type of place I always said I'd go only once right but then you're like yeah no I'm like yeah, you know what maybe for hey, a one I'm a Raiders fan yeah I do it so um, yeah but uh, yeah I'm, I'm going to be in a fast car later this morning What's the story with this? Quite nervous about this. So uh, I just re- reached out by um, the people of Alex Dunn. Alex Dunn, for anyone unfamiliar, he's a 16-year-old from Clonbelog, I think, in, in Offaly, and um, tearing things up at the minute in, in Formula 4. So he's taking part in the Formula 4 Britain uh, Championships and a couple of others as well. Um, What's Formula 4? So essentially, as you go down the list, F1, F2, F3, F4, the Formula 4 championships as well, it, it's just the engine, essentially. The, the engine power is, is not quite as strong, obviously, in a Formula 4 car as a Formula 1 car. Um, Alex, at 16, had the opportunity to test a Formula 3 car last week, uh, or the week before. He's been chosen also in the last couple of weeks to, to take part in a Ferrari Academy um, uh, next year as well. So... This guy's on the radar of of the top teams in the world, and he's racing against drivers maybe a couple of years older than him as well. Um, and he's just about to clinch. He should next week, I think it is, in Brands Hatch clinch the Formula Four British Championship. Um, 
and, and some of the drivers he's competing against there are, are being touted as, as future Formula 1 drivers so there's no reason why Alex can't be I think Eddie Irvine was maybe the last Irish Formula 1 driver so we, we, we haven't had many at all but um, it would be fantastic to see someone like Alex come through I know his, his dad Noel Dunn was a former driver who's now his manager and agent looking after his career and that sort of thing uh, but Alex seems to have a great head in his shoulders and well able to talk and, and he's confident and cocky which I think to get into a car like that you'd have to be Right and so a car like that it looks it looks like a Formula 1 car Yeah yeah same single engine <coughs> uh, open kind of uh, chassis setup. so uh, similar looking car it's just less power but uh, but still a strong car and, and we're going to be down in, I'm going to be down in Mondello Park with him later this morning we'll, we'll see it off the ball in the next week or two but uh, um, yeah, he's going to take me around in a couple of couple of fast cars. What I, cars? I, they've just they haven't told me what cars, but they've told me they will be f- extraordinarily fast, um, which has made me nervous. Give you a speed? Yeah, they didn't give me a speed. Uh, probably because I mightn't have shown up if they if they did. Um, like I've I've never done this. I've always said, oh, I'd love to. I'd love to hop in a car with Tommy Byrne, the uh, famed former driver from is he from Drogheda, offered me offered this to me once. He's, what he says, I'll take you around Mondello at some oh, point right. when I'm home. Oh yeah, um, but you have to do it with him. I have to do it with he's him. He's mad. Yeah, crash and burn. He's the he's the clip at the start of the show going. He just went nuts when I started shooting the gun off. Yeah, yeah. That was like the the Mexican uh, team owner. Yes, and he was like. I'm having a good time here, but maybe it's time for me to leave. Yeah, yeah, that was the that was the moment we had. The, the use of firearms, like wantonly. It's yeah. Like I'm going to leave now. I remember Had speaking enough. to I spoke to Tommy over lockdown for an interview, and, and like he's just a fascinating character. So yeah, going around with him would be would be. Oh, you got to do that. Yeah, 100. Uh, percent I know he lives in the states, but he does come home every now and again. Yeah, a couple yeah. Times a year, so we'll uh, we'll have to get him in the studio and maybe uh, take the two of us around Mondello Park and screen the lights out. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, it's going to be. That's the look. Yeah. I'm and um, what's the what's the kid's name? Uh, Alex Dunn. Alex Dunn, sixteen year old. And so he doesn't actually have a license yet. Obviously. No. So we got. So I'm going to hop in the car with a sixteen year old um, driver who uh, knows no no fear probably at sixteen. I'd imagine. Yeah. Uh, so it'll just be the twenty nine year old in the passenger seat who would be slowly p- uh, petrifying himself to death. Is there a possibility? It's like you're they they've got a version of the Formula Four where you can sit behind him and. So I wouldn't have thought so. A, a double seater. They might just have. A, well, they could. They could do uh, sponsors and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen. I, I, I certainly wouldn't turn down the opportunity. I do. Any, I try anything. Do you know? So. Mandela's quick. Yeah. Which, which, and it's it's the home of Irish racing in many ways as well. And I've never been to Mondello Park, there so uh, taking it off the list. Well, um, enjoy. I'm a bit of. I am an adrenaline junk. I like I like doing that type of thing, like you know, skydives and mountain climbs and that sort of thing. I enjoy I enjoy it. So it's so it's not something I'm I'm really dreading. It's more so the fear of the unknown. Like how scary is it going to be? So what's next on your list after this? We see we had myself and the friends had booked. We did obviously climb the. The, the highest point in the Rockies during the summer, Mount Elbert. We did Kilimanjaro a couple of years ago. We had Mount Elbrus booked, which is in the Caucasus, but it's in Russia. So the whole uh, shitstorm essentially ticked that one off our list, so we can't really uh, do that one anymore. But I don't know what I want to do next. It's probably going to be Everest Base Camp next year. Um, I remember MDMA saying, nah, I can't do that. It's too touristy. He, he, he did something else. Yeah, you see, I'm, he was doing media around something last year when he was away, and he panned the camera around, and it was like, mm. "Nah, I'm not doing base camp because everybody does that." Well, true. You see, I'm going to tack on. <coughs> I want to do Island Peak, which is a mountain in in the in the Himalayas as well. So you can do base camp and then go on and climb Island Peak, which is six thousand one hundred meters, which will be an altitude record for me. Killy was five eight nine five, I think, in meters. So that would be that would be probably the way to make it more uh, less touristy and more enjoyable. You can walk up Kilimanjaro, though, can't you? 
Yeah, in, in six and a half days up and a day and a half down. Is can, it six and a half days up? Yeah, yeah. Right. Camp, camping in tents. Right. Um, yeah, terrifying. The, the, it, is it terrifying? Do you know what? The last night, the, the last night we, we started at midnight and then you get to the summit at about eight or nine in the morning. So, so you, you climb through the night? Yeah, you climb through the night to avoid the, the heat uh, of the next day. And like, there was there was, a one, there was one point where, where our um, porters and guides were... We stopped. We stopped on ice. We were kind of at altitude. Your, your your brain isn't working too well, and there was a load of bags and tarps. And this is at altitude. It's not obviously not a safe place to sleep, uh, and freezing cold temperatures as well. And our guides just pulled back the the tarp, and there was two local tar- uh, guides porters who had been carrying bags got tired with the altitude, and just went to sleep. Right. And it was it was incredibly dangerous. They obviously had to be taken down the mountain. But just seeing that as you're on the way up. Right. Yeah, uh, cool. That can happen to us. Yeah, it was it was kind of like an eye opening experience. It was like right that this is this is kind of a little bit dangerous. Um, so yeah, it was it was one of those things when you get to the top when you're forty five minutes to an hour from the top, then you know you know you can do it. I got a nosebleed on the summit, right? Which wouldn't be a good sign. So I was fairly uh, swiftly taken down the mountain um, by my own by my by own legs, of course. But I, but I went down probably a little bit quicker than I otherwise would have. So yeah, scary but worthwhile. Very good. So it's not just a walk, Jer. Okay. It's a dangerous walk. No, fair enough. Okay. Uh, 7.39 this morning, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can. 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. Uh, surely it's time we get back to the Premier League, says Bobby Dwyer, with the biggest derby in the league on in the North London on Saturday morning. <laughs> yeah, forget about the Manchester one on Sunday, obviously. Morning, yeah. lads. Is it safe to come out now after Tuesday night, asks Chris Cal. No. No. It's not. Uh, <clears throat> under review. That's the back page headline on the Daily Mail this morning. FAI heat rising on Kenny after Nations League. Stephen Kenny must oversee a fast start with the Republic of Ireland in the Euro 2024 qualifiers next March or risk losing his job as manager, says uh, Philip Quinn this morning. As is normal after a qualification, FAI CEO Jonathan Hill will conduct a review into the campaign, which saw Ireland finish with seven points out of 18, a distant third to Scotland and Ukraine. Obviously, it's still our record total in the Nations League. The FAI board meets today and Hill's review is expected to get the green light to kick off his assessment of an underwhelming campaign. Yeah, well, the board we're going to be meeting anyway today. So uh, yeah, and and this is uh, standard standard procedure. So I, I don't know. Does it? I mean, like if he gets hammered in the first two games, then yeah, that's the, if you're out early of the campaign, then they are going to ask him. Yeah. Questions and their questions will be asked about the job, but that's fairly standard stuff. So I don't think that this is ratcheting up the pressure any more than the pressure is there as the manager of the national team. No. Like the reality is, it's next March to November. So like by. By this time next year, plus a couple of months, we're going to know essentially what our what our standing is in terms of the European qualifiers. Like Kenny Cunningham filled me with a little bit more optimism last night. He was saying obviously it wasn't a good enough performance, but the team will know that. Conor Harrahan's mistake was just one of those things that happens to a professional. He'll probably not do a pass like that for the rest of his career. Um, but but he did fill me with a little bit more optimism. Obviously, we have to wait for the draw on Sunday week in Frankfurt to see who we get as third seeds. That could be that could be nasty. You know, it could be a France and Italy. Cook at England in there as well. Um, one of those, like one of those big teams, though, always craps out. Yeah, there's yeah. always like a, just a weird cycle of football that one of the big teams craps out. Hopefully, it'll be in our group as opposed to in another group. But you know, <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, it's, as long as it's not Denmark and Wales and Georgia and these teams that were absolutely sick to the teeth of playing against. I know Kevin De Bruyne was was quoted last week before they played Wales saying, "I feel like half of my international career has been against Wales," which is probably not far from the truth. Um, so yeah, you kind of want a, a decent group, and I know a lot of Irish fans who travel over to even Pat Blanock here from News Talk Breakfast. He goes to all the away games, so for those fans, it must be 
really interesting to watch yeah, those draws. Yeah, I know. But then when you see Armenia... Our regular haunt. Oh, hello again. Great <laughs> yeah. to see you. We love you. Yeah, well, at least, yeah. yeah. With, with an interesting draw, you get to see new places and it's kind of like a, a cultural slash geographical experience being an Irish fan as well, where you get to see some new countries. So from that perspective, I'd like to get some, some novel pairings. Um, from Stephen's perspective, I don't know what the, the ideal draw is. I know he's heading over to the draw as well himself, but... We wait with, with, with bated breath, but those those couple of games in March are going to be the, the tell-all. Like he, he couldn't lose his job now, but he could lose his job then. Yeah, uh, Denmark, Portugal, Belgium, Hungary, Switzerland, and Poland are in pot one. Uh, pot two is France, Austria, Czech Republic, England, Wales, Israel, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Serbia, Scotland, Finland. There's some easy teams there. No, sorry, not easy teams. There's some reasonable teams there, like Finland and Bosnia, who you wouldn't mind getting a, sec- a second seed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Pot four has Georgia, you could do without Greece, Turkey, Kazakhstan, Luxembourg, <laughs> Azerbaijan, Kosovo, Bulgaria, Faroe Islands and North Macedonia. So there's a wide variety of teams in yeah. that group. <clears throat> and some familiar teams as well. Yeah, I would expect us to be able to get six points off the Faroes, but uh, against Georgia, you'd be not quite sure. Yeah, Luxembourg have obviously improved quite significantly, and uh, it's not great. And then pot five has Slovakia, Northern Ireland, Cyprus, Belarus, Lithuania, Gibraltar, Remember we were like, yeah, you know, remember those guys. scraping past the mighty Gibraltar twice. <laughs> Estonia, Latvia, Moldova, Malta. And then there's a, another pot six, which we may or may not need, depending on what. Yeah. So, I, like, the, you know, it's going to be exciting. It's going to happen very quickly. Well, it's, it's, it's more enjoyable. We were saying this yesterday. Like, I actually like going to Ireland matches now. Um, whereas for a time there, I still went. And yet, it just wasn't. You weren't expecting anything. Well, at least we got five goals the other night. I know a lot of people in the comments might li- might enjoy that, but the reality is these games are are better to watch. You know, I'm I'm sure, like any good board, the FAI board are saying, "What's your succession plan? Yeah, what is the succession plan here?" And I don't know what the succession plan is. Is it automatically? Is it automatically Jim Crawford, or is it automatically uh, John O'Shea? Is that what we're talking about? Like, um, John O'Shea would have a lot of support if he was to be the next manager, but it's very early in the cycle. Yeah. For him, wouldn't it be great, <clears throat> pardon me, for him to go off and get some experience even within the FAI? I don't know. I don't know what his plan is. Was Keith Andrews, <clears throat> is that too close to the current tenure? Maybe. I don't uh, know. I don't know. I mean... Um, Stephen Bradley? Like... Future Ireland manager at some point, the, you'd imagine. The, I don't know. Again, like, uh, what they did with Stephen Kenny was what a good organisation should do and, and because John Delaney made the decision it's like automatically oh this is, must be bad but uh, you know uh, getting Stephen Kenny into the system and giving him on some understanding of the talent pool coming through mm. and then saying you're going to be the future manager like controversial and all as it was um, it's what England did with Southgate and they've been rewarded yeah we shirk away sometimes from, from talking about succession <coughs> plans and I know from Stephen Kenny's perspective, perspective maybe he doesn't want to think about a succession plan because that's him thinking about the end of his time it's as not his job it's the, it's yeah the, <coughs> The FAI should have a plan in place. It's the board and the executives' job to do that, and I, I'm sure they do. But, like, who are the names on that on that list? Are they just mates of Jonathan Hill from his time in England? Well, that's the thing. As like, well. are they? Or who, who's on the list? You know, who's credibly on the list? Like, I haven't seen anybody who's like, "Oh, he can't do it. He can't do it. He's not." Gonna. Give me the alternative, then. Yeah, because the, the days of, of hiring a, a big name foreign manager who just comes in with with, with no knowledge of it, like 
the Trapattoni thing was is not going to happen again. That was just a, that was a one one off. You'd imagine where someone comes in, at least Mick McCarthy and Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane, and had a semblance of understanding as to the players and and maybe a setup of how Ireland often play football. Not that they have to stick to that, but yeah, I'd like I'd like to see. And we don't even have to be told of the plan. The the you know the fans and the media don't necessarily need to be told. What their plan is, but as long as in the in the, in the background behind the scenes, the FAI have some sort of plan, uh, because obviously if, if Stephen Kenny loses the first two games of the qualifiers next March, he will be under pressure. Um, so this, these plans can come around quicker than, than yeah. people expect. On the other side, if he was to win those two games, yeah. then the pressure eases. Like that's football. Like, yeah, we, yeah. We're we're in that situation now where um, you know uh, that's very realistic, right? It is uh, seven forty-six. Kathleen McAmey is with us. Kathleen, good morning to you. How are you? Morning, guys. Doing well. Picture on the back page with uh, Katie McCabe. Ix nil Arsenal one. This is the mail as well. McCabe's Gunners on a roll. It was um, a relatively controversial game. It was quite controversial before the game started. Uh, basically, the Arsenal staff discovered that the goals were 10 centimetres smaller than they should be. Um, so they were obviously not happy with that. And then the same thing happened at halftime, where Ajax tried to make them smaller again. And then towards the end of the ha- second half, they also had Beth Mead coming off with a pretty nasty concussion, it looked like. Um, the Ajax player went and her both went for the ball. Ajax player was very, very badly timed and just basically headbutted. Beth Mead and when Arsenal tried to bring on a concussion sub they were initially told that they could and then they were told they couldn't so they had to play with just 10 players for it ended up being about 10 minutes because there was so much extra time after the injury Right and do we uh, like why why weren't they allowed to bring on do we know why they weren't allowed to bring on Well well, the thing was, like, the assistant ref told them that they could, so they just presumed that they would be able to. And then as they were bringing on Lena Hershey, the, the ref was like, actually, no, sorry, you can't. So I don't think they even know themselves. It's not actually necessary in the Ch- Women's Champions League at the moment. It is in the WSL. Okay. You're able to bring on uh, two concussion subs per so game. the rules haven't caught up yet? No, not at all. Uh, and it, But it was unfortunate because, it, I mean, Arsenal did the right thing. They took Beth Mead off straight away. Jonas Adebel said after the match there was absolutely no question about them not taking her off even though that did reduce them to 10 players I think he was mostly angry at the fact that they weren't allowed the substitute but also that he wasted the time that he could have been talking to his players about how to set up to defend against 11 players he spent that time preparing Lena Hertig to come on especially when like the game was so in the balance like it was 1-0 it was 2-2 on aggregate there was a good few opportunities for Ajax to level it up which would have sent it to extra time and penalties um, so yeah. right so this is qualifier stage not group stage no group stage uh, okay. draw is on Monday uh, which is another thing a lot of English managers are kind of annoyed at the fact that they do have to go through these qualifiers even though they do come in the top three of the league Okay. Um, how did Kelly McKay play? She played well. She was employed on the right wing, which she was also there for, I think it was like the last 20, 30 minutes of the North London Derby at the weekend. And she's been playing there a bit more. I think it's with, when they don't start Beth Mead, they tend to bring her there if Beth Mead comes off. Um, and yeah, she played well. She was very much a classic Katie McKay. Arsenal were pressing quite high on Ajax, which was a lot more successful than what they did the first time around. And she was, as particularly towards the end of the game, she put in some really, really important tackles to make sure that it did stay 1-0 to Arsenal. Okay. Is this playing on the right thing good for her development in the long run? <clears throat> Is it something that actually uh, makes her a better footballer? Is this some, some way for her to be more effective, cutting in on the left? 
I think, well, we were talking to the legendary manager of Arsenal, Vic Akers, on Friday, and he was saying he wanted to see Katie McKay play there a bit more. I don't think there's any harm in it. I think the more versatile she is, the more it, it suits Ireland better. It gives us more options. I mean, I don't see us changing her position around all that much. I mean, the main thing with Katie McCabe in Ireland is how high up the pitch she's going to play rather than on which side. But I do think it is important. Like it is good for her development in general to have that versatility. Do Ajax have like a little goalkeeper? Is that the problem? Well, I love this shit houseery. This what? is fantastic. How, and and do they, how do they? How do they like? <clears throat> do they just dig a deeper hole? How do you cheat like that? It's just the fact that they tried it at halftime as well. And that the like the Arsenal management were literally so like out on, a, over, on a very unsteady ladder, like trying to measure it with literally just like a ruler, looking at it, seeing if it was the right size. It was absolutely mental because I saw it happening on the live stream and I was like, "This is a bit weird that they're checking the goal." And then I saw all the English journalists that were over there being like, you're not going to believe this, but they've tried to do it again at half-time. <laughs> <laughs> For a big club like Ajax, like, it can't be by mistake. No. It's got to be. No. I mean, it should, it should be thrown out for this. Not are, at all. Or are, uh, is there like a... Are they within the... You know, it needs to be this height and it's a range of heights. I think the goalposts have to be a, an absolute set height, don't they? Yeah, no, it's, it's a set like height that it has to be. And, I mean... Well, they're already out because they haven't qualified, but... I, part yeah, but of me kind of loves season. the fact that there is like just that little bit of niggliness. You know, I I kind of want more of that. I want more of the yeah. ridiculous stories and the more of people trying to get things through, or I don't know, just the general hatred between teams. I'm like, bring it on! This is great. <laughs> All right, Kathleen, good stuff. Thanks a million. Thank you. Uh, right, uh, so Arsenal are through to the next. Wait, sorry, group stage is next, and group stage draw is next. Yeah, group stage draw is on Monday. Okay, good stuff. It was around twelve or one o'clock. Okay. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Here's what's coming up between now and ten o'clock. Jess McFadden is with us in just a second. Keith Wood is next at ten past eight. Sports pages at half eight. Uh, sports news at eight forty. Katie O'Brien, uh, fresh from uh, meddling at the rowing, is going to join us at eight fifty. Keen O'Connor is going to join us at ten past nine to talk to us about Limerick versus Real Madrid. Yes, that's correct. And then sit down and shut up is the uh, documentary. Um, we're going to play it out for you today. It's a brilliant story of the time that Real Madrid came to play Limerick. And um, it actually took place in Lansdowne Road. Uh, we'll get you the full details on that a little bit later. But, right, all this week, an incredible opportunity to combine sports and leisure with a visit to L.A. on America's West Coast. You and two friends could be jetting out with multi-award winning Cassidy Travel on direct flights from Dublin with Aer Lingus on the 1st of December to spend four nights in the four-star hotel, the Wayfarer, in downtown L.A. to take on the Rams, to take in, rather, the Rams against the Seahawks in the NFL. To be in the hat for this prize, follow at Cassidy Travel on Twitter. Make sure you retweet our competition post as well, because that's how we're going to know that you entered. It's all with thanks to Cassidy Travel, your one-stop sports travel shop. Sports and travel, a perfect match. You can visit CassidyTravel.ie for more. Um, it's a good prize. Make sure you enter. Get on to uh, add off the ball on Twitter. Right, we're turning our attention to Formula One now, ahead of the Sing- Singapore Grand Prix this weekend. And to chat about it, I'm delighted to say we're joined on the line by Jess McFadden of the Motorsport Network. Jess, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Yeah, very good, guys. It's a little early for me usually, but I'm happy to be here. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that we, um, we managed to get you then. Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier on about this. It could be over, that the race could actually be over for the title uh, this weekend. Is it a little bit early? Is there a little bit of disappointment about that? Or is this just like we need to sit back and enjoy the fact that we have an absolute superstar in our hands? 
guess it depends if you are a Max Verstappen fan or not. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, we know ultimately he's going to be champion this year. It is just a case of of when, not if. Um, and mathematically, yes, he could do it this weekend. It kind of depends on, as it, as you would imagine, with when there's maths involved. It depends on where Charles Leclerc and, and Sergio Perez finish this weekend, and, or if, indeed if they finish at all. It is a it is a street track. It is twisty, windy, um, and we do tend to see quite a few. Uh, crashes and incidents and people make mistakes around here so um but equally so could max so it is it is a bit up in the air uh, as to whether he can do it i i have a feeling it, it pr- probably is going to go run a little bit longer but it is it is kind of just staving off the inevitable really um but that is that is it and, and you're right it's been amazing to watch um max i guess <laughs> not to bring up last year but there is an asterisk next to his first championship this one there definitely isn't at all um the singapore grand prix offers a very specific challenge to the drivers shane was talking earlier on about the weight loss that they get what what, what are the conditions actually going to be like for them this weekend it, it looks pretty harsh uh, there's storms predicted all weekend um which obviously shake things up anyway but it is really hot and humid as well um, and yeah uh, weight loss is is a massive deal we, we've just done a, a piece on autosport as to why the singapore grand prix is the toughest challenge for drivers and a lot of it is to do with the climate um, but also the track the track is extremely demanding it's a bit like uh, it's a bit monaco-esque a um, little bit more room for overtaking than monaco but it is like full concentration full commitment but in you know up to 70 80 percent humidity so it's it's really hot sticky and if it's going to be wet um you know will we get running that is always the question because (laughs) when i last checked obviously you can see i'm not in singapore right now um but when i checked with people on the ground this morning especially there was almost like monsoon level rain so um it's going to be it's going to be an interesting one um so it's definitely one to look out for but yeah it's 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 one of my favourite races, and we've not been there since 2019, so it's the first time back since then. Uh, the drivers you know, haven't really got a reference point. It, it was a while ago. Obviously, they'll be doing sim work and lots of prep, but, yeah, it's a proper challenge for the drivers. I know a lot of people just kind of uh, talk about these pandering Formula 1 drivers who are well-paid and, and, and you know, got a... Um, you know, a nice lifestyle, it has to be said, but that heat, um, especially on race day in Singapore, like when you consider the, the the heat of the engine around them as well and then the even the the, the night temperatures in Singapore which are fairly uh, significant like the, there are a couple of hours in the car they've only a certain amount of access to water as well so it's not an easy physical endurance test for them for the, for them specifically in Singapore no this is this is the one where you see them jump out the car and they are literally dripping in sweat um and if you're wearing a white race suit then it's almost see-through. Um, so it it really, really is challenging. And I think that's that's something that maybe holds Formula One back in terms of perception from audiences is that we don't actually get to see, not like football or rugby or anything like that, where you actually see the physical prowess of the athletes. They're cocooned in a car and you don't get to see quite how much they are physically having to fight through each lap. And they're doing it for a long time. Now, I am by no means a racing driver, but recently I went out to America and I learned how to drive a Formula 4 car, which is, ah. <laughs> is, is a few levels down from a Formula 1 car. Um, but even, you know, I did three days of that, which probably at a time was a maximum of probably 20 laps ever at, at once. I was done. 
I was finished. You know, it was it was so like the the obviously I'm I don't train quite as well as they do, um, but it was genuinely tiring. And to keep that level of focus and concentration across an entire Grand Prix weekend, and especially during a Grand Prix when it is a street circuit like Singapore. It's it, it's it's super physical and definitely not anybody could just jump in and do that. So, yeah, it's kind of one of those things where we don't really get to see it. But Singapore, you will get a sense of just how draining it is. And you mentioned water. A lot of them this year aren't carrying water bottles on the car. So uh, and that's a, a partly to do with weight saving. For some drivers, it's a choice. They actually don't like drinking during a race. But when they're losing as much fluid as they are around Singapore, their hydration is going to be key. All right, that's really interesting. The, um, <clears throat> we were talking about this a little bit earlier on, but Shane is due to go around Mondello Park, which is uh, our, our fastest track in Ireland here today. And he's a little bit concerned about it. How fast did you get in, into an F4? What, what speed do you get up to? We were, getting, we were over 100 miles an hour. Um, which I guess, like again, compared to and I don't know, maybe some people here are going, "Wow, we do that on the motorway <laughs> safely." I hope, but um, when you're in an open cockpit single seater where the suspension is stiff as anything, you can feel every bump in the road. Um, you can feel the g forces. Like when I was going down the straights, I could and full throttle. You could my helmet it was slightly lifting. You could feel the forces kind of moving you around. It definitely feels a lot faster than 100 miles an hour. So, um, yeah, it wasn't like super speed, but it was quick enough. Let's just say that it was quick enough. <laughs> it's funny in, in your line of work, Jess, I guess it probably gives you more of a appreciation for the, for the Formula One drivers, if, if I'm right in saying that. Like when you, when you get behind the wheel of any fast car, Formula Four included, like there has to be some element of fear, surely. Yeah, there definitely was, especially when you looked at the bill. If you crashed the car, that was enough to kind of put the fear of God in you. Um, but yeah, no, 100%. I think a lot of people, and especially like a lot of like people that make comment on drivers for a living, like I do, you get criticism, well, you're not a driver. How would you know? How can you possibly comment? So I love the fact that I got to go off and do that, even if it is quite a few worlds removed from what these guys are doing out in Singapore you definitely do get a whole level of appreciation. And I genuinely think my key takeaway from my short <laughs> motorsport, like driver career w- was the focus element, the ability to keep your brain needing to operate at that level, at that speed for that long. It was, it was really hard by the end of the last day. We were really lucky. We got told you're going to make mistakes in this session. It's your last session. You're tired, you, but you're pumped full of adrenaline. So you don't feel it. It was sloppy, to say the least. Like it, my last session was definitely the worst of of all of the time I was spent in the car. Which doesn't and make any sense. Thinking, like logically, that doesn't make any sense. You're supposed to get better as you go along. You're going to get more experience. You get more used to it. Yeah. But, but actually, the the physical toll that it takes on you is really interesting. I I do wonder. So yeah. we've obviously, you know, we've been talking nonstop about how the Netflix series has managed to popularize the sport and bring in new fans. I do wonder if the next wave is actually going to be the good quality simulators that you get where you can sit in and experience those G-forces and actually begin to be overwhelmed by the experience of being in a car. Like, so, um, I was uh, I was in Mandela this week doing laps in the BMW and it was about as fast, maybe 130, 140 kilometers an hour and everybody's like, oh, yeah, what's the big deal? But actually, when you're on a track and it's in a straight line <laughs> and you mm-hmm. press the button and you're told there's somebody telling you what to do, that's how, uh, you know, they're holding your hands. But like, your head goes back yeah. yeah, and it, it, it's not an experience that you G-forces, get when you're on the motorway yeah. as you slowly go from 80 to 90, okay, whatever the speed limit is. <laughs> I could have stopped there. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and it, but it was 
the first time ever that I really understood that like imagine doing this for 90 laps mm. like yeah. braking at the very last second and then mm-hmm. and then your body goes forwards and you've got to roll with it it's like totally unexpected and I think yeah. that, that might and be it, the, the next bit where you suck more fans in I think I think so it's just it's so hard um, some drivers talk about it because some drivers absolutely hate the sim because they you don't get um, <laughs> what they they call like uh they call it feeling it through their butt. Like they can feel the car moving through the bottom of their body. Um, and you don't get that in a sim. Like you can't feel the tarmac underneath you and you don't quite get that same sense. And um, a lot of drivers are intuitive drivers. So obviously they know the, they know how to drive a car. They know the theory behind braking and uh, the levels of grip and stuff like that. But so much of it is, is through feeling in the car and you don't get that on sims you do as you say like they're getting so much more advanced with the ability to you know almost generate g-force like uh situations but i don't think there will always be a level removed as you said like sitting in a car even if it's a closed cockpit you get such a different feeling um and i guess there's always going to be the element of when you're when you're in it and it's real and you really could crash that's a whole new level of yeah. <laughs> fear and uh, and and feeling. So, yeah, I think I, I mean gaming has got so many people into motorsport. So I think you're right. I think it is definitely a next step, but there will always be that little gap. It, it's that funny, just gap. It, it kind of ma- makes me think as well about the braking zones. Like when you're when you're on a track for the first time and you're trying to work out where the braking zones are. Like I saw a great clip of it's probably an older clip now of Lewis Hamilton talking about when he was a young uh, kid his dad would take him out to tracks and, and his dad would stand on the corner watching the, the other drivers go first and he'd watch the fastest driver and say, okay, that's where the fastest driver has braked here, so you have to brake here a metre, you know, beyond. And and like obviously... That, no that, pressure. That, well, yeah, and, and Lewis said, basically, he would spin out and crash the first few times, but eventually mm-hmm. got to the point where he was comfortable braking a metre later than even the fastest driver. So, and it's similar, with, even with Singapore this weekend, Jess, like I noticed that like, mm-hmm. I think four of the drivers are... are in Singapore for the first ever time uh, yeah. if I'm right in saying Schumacher, Latifi, Sunoda and uh, Zhou Guan Yu as well I've never raced in Singapore so it must be quite a scary experience for, for a driver coming to a track like Singapore and your first time racing in it is, is in Formula 1 yeah, uh, but I guess these guys. This is what these guys gear up for. Pardon the pun, but they do. They are. This is what they. This is what they live for. And I think they know that Singapore is a really interesting driver track. So I think they're probably. I mean, the, the problem will be is whether they like race, racing in the wet or not. You'll you'll drive. Some drivers love it. Some drivers don't mind. Other drivers hate it. And with the with the levels of water that we're talking about. Coupling all of that together is a massive challenge for a, a, a novice driver around the around the the course. So, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see which of those n- those newbies to Singapore will will do better um, and will. I, I mean, I love it. I love a wet race because I think you really do see that next level of greatness in drivers. It separates the good from the great drivers, basically. When when you get to see them um, racing in the wet especially around a track like Singapore. As long as it's not as, as wet as Spa last year, but we won't, we won't uh, talk hope. about that. Let's uh, <laughs> move on from that one. Uh, like Singapore, Jess, is, is, is one of those places where so many of the races over, over uh, the years have been fairly historic. Like I'm thinking, was it the 2008 race where mm. Nelson Piquet was told to crash on purpose 
to, to essentially okay. help help Fernando Alonso to win the, the title? Yes, yes, it was the scene of Crashgate. Um, it's <laughs> yeah, we we it's kind of a sensitive one for people, but yeah, there was it was. I think I heard you talking about cheating um, earlier on, but that was this was out and out cheating, and they were they were caught. So this was Renault. Um, Renault wanted Fernando Alonso to win the race, and so told Alonso's teammate to crash at a particular spot in the around the track that meant that people couldn't come into the pit lane. Um, and so it basically shuffled Alonso up the order and he ended up at the front of the pack and went on to win the race. And it wasn't until the next season when uh, Alonso's teammate Nelson Piquet Jr. was kind of kicked out of the team that he then ran to the FIA with uh, a testimony saying we cheated that race. Um, and yeah, it was it, it shook F1. It was it was a really big scandal. Um, so uh, it, it took it took a little bit of time for first you know Renault pulled out of Formula One after that because uh, they lost their title sponsor as well and it was all down to this one element of cheating so it's it sent shockwaves through Formula One so yeah Singapore was was host host to that um, we also obviously had uh, the the famous uh, I think it was 2017 when uh, the two Ferraris and Max Verstappen crashed the the two the leading three crashed out. Um, at the very first corner, uh, that, so it, there's been so much drama around Singapore. It is it is a place for both great racing. We saw Lewis Hamilton's 2018 qualifying lap, which is still heralded as one of the greatest qualifying laps that we've ever seen in Formula One. So, yeah, Singapore has a lot of excitement around it, a lot of drama, um, and and hopefully, I'm just I genuinely am just hoping that it's not rained off because this this race, as I said, is one of my favourites. Uh, two two last questions for me. One is about um, Shane was talking to us about the number of sprint races is going to be increased next season. I I don't really understand exactly how they impact the position on the starting grid. What is it is it uniform across the season? How do they work? No, so I I imagine that at this point we need to decide if we were going to have sprint races as part of the full weekend lineup or or not but it turns out we're gonna we're gonna test out six next year so that means for those six race weekends their their format is slightly different so instead of qualifying on a saturday we have qualifying on a friday and that then sets the grid for the sprint and then the winner that the basically the order of finish for the sprint sets the grid order for the race so it does it does impact a, a race weekend and we've seen um the races that we have had sprints over the past two years um we have seen them impact the 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 results in terms of either drivers understand a bit better what they have to do in the race because they've had a kind of a racing simulation we know then what the tires how they're going to act so it it, it informs uh, strategy, race strategy. So it, they do impact, um, the full Grand Prix weekend. So I'm, jury's still out for me. I haven't quite decided if I like them or not because they clearly do impact, as I, as I was mentioning, they do impact the racing. They have brought drama, but people are still a little bit out as to whether or not it's the right thing to do and whether we should just stick to our usual Grand Prix, um, our usual Grand Prix format. So they're gonna. The, the the idea is that they're gonna bring it to races where overtaking is possible, because the whole point, the element of it as well, is to give fans more racing action across a weekend. Yeah. If you do that at a track where you don't get overtaking, then you're just kind of 
it's pointless. re-emphasizing that there's no, there's no overtaking around this track. So that's that's the idea anyway. So we're getting a three more than we've had this year. This year we've, we're, we're having three. Okay. So next year we're having six. Yeah. Okay, so it, it's coming slowly and uh, it seems like that's how change works. And so maybe uh, that preempts the answer to this question, which has come in on YouTube from Steve Lane. Would Formula One benefit from, from a US-style playoff system? The way the final 10 races or so would be between the top eight or 12, etc. It's a similar experience in NASCAR for the drivers. And then he goes on to say the recent Texas race was 130 Fahrenheit in the car for the drivers big respect to the F1 guys for the endurance they're mm. about to go through um, I suspect if there's any reticence about introducing the sprint the notion of taking the top 8 or 12 and turning that into a playoff is a bit of a no-go for now <laughs> I, I think it, we're, it's already a complex sport right it's it's already got so many different levels of well yes but um, I feel, I find myself having to say that a lot if somebody asks me is this the rule and i have to go yeah but if this happens and that changes so i i i am i wouldn't i wouldn't quite go as far as say i'm a purist because i do think that the sport needs to evolve as time goes on um but i i'm i'm not in favor of anything quite like that i mean bernie eccleston when he was in charge came up with some weird and wacky ideas to try and shake f1 up uh most of them were put to one side but i think i don't i just don't I, especially when we had uh, a season like last year i feel like it would yeah it, it, the whole point is that we want it to be as close as we had last year yeah. no, fair regardless point. of regardless of out, outcome but Jess, yeah i think i'm saying no <laughs> Jess, great stuff great to have you with us thanks a million cheers thank you Jess McFedge in there. Uh, if you want to get in touch, 0879180180 is the WhatsApp number. It is 10 minutes past eight. Do you want to spend the night with Roddy Collins? We've teamed up with Penguin Ireland to celebrate the release of Roddy's new autobiography, The Rodfather, with a special night at the Sugar Club in Dublin on Thursday, October the 13th. Richie McCormick will be joined on the night by The Rodfather himself, the book's ghostwriter Paul Howard, and some very special guests. It promises to be a cracking night. Check out thesugarclub.com for tickets very limited number of tickets for that for uh, the night and you can get ready to sign the book as well we're live with Keith Wood after the break OTB AM 12 minutes past 8 Keith Wood good morning to you how are you I'm very good thank you how are you I'm very well you sent me a text yesterday about the uh, changes coming in uh, rugby league super league um, was this like uh, a thing that to signify that these are problems that every sport is having around relegation and finance or was it a mm, this might be a way out of rugby's uh, problems well, it was a little bit of both, actually. I look. I looked at it, and I was interested in some of the terminology that was used, which we haven't we haven't kind of heard as much here. Which was, well, first we need to figure out how many games we want the players to play, and then we need to incorporate having um, with the Super League Cup and the uh, international matches into it. And that just seemed like a, a almost like a different way of looking at, at rugby union, the mind rugby league. And I know rugby league is far less uh, complicated in terms of the, that it isn't a huge international game. There are big games when they happen, but it isn't central to the funding model. Um, and rugby league have gone onto a strategic partnership with IMG to try and see uh, if they can maximise it. And for me, I just like the it's it's the concept. It's it's how you think, not what you think. And it's that idea that um, you could stop and take a breath and say, okay, can we get something that's really fit for purpose? Yeah. I mean, it's it's largely what we were talking about um, at the start of COVID when we were doing these deep dives on what the future of the game should be about. And 
at one point we I remember being us being particularly optimistic that it's it felt like the mood music was suggesting that there was going to be a global calendar agreed and then whatever happened that all just disappeared and we've been left with the dog's dinner that we have at the moment yeah like dog's dinner is is a tough way of looking at it but it seems like an expanded version of the game from um you know from pre-professional and uh there's a constant drive to make rugby bigger. Um, and I think too often we try and follow what soccer is as a, a global sport and try to follow and presume that you're going to get the same number of people to go and watch it. But rugby's complicated and is made increasingly complicated by law changes. And they're all made for the right reason. But um, at some stage you'd say, God, we'd never really have this. Would we start some other way? You know, and I... So I look. I look at it. I go back to my, my first year in, in in the Ireland squad, which was in '92, um, which was a very different time. But we had it was five nations. So you had four matches in, in the spring. You um, had a summer tour. Not every year, but most years, you might have one or two matches, international matches. Then, and you might have one autumn international, maybe two. Now that's gone to 10 or 12 all the time. The games have become infinitely harder, more physical. The game, not always is better, but some of it is just phenomenal. So we saw in the summer that the game can be magnificent. So that's not a dog's dinner, but um, but it's the constant toll that seems to be taking and the extension of the of the year to being the bones of 52 weeks of the year. I mean, there's it's it's relenting. So well, let's, relenting. let's layer in now uh, a global club World Cup on top of the situation that we have at the moment and say, no, you're going to have the same available players. And actually, you're going to have fewer available players because finances are coming down. We're seeing the, the club game in England on the verge of collapse with a couple of badly run clubs perhaps having a knock-on impact on everything else, you know? It, it's, um, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily badly run as in clubs. I think as a model in, in England in particular, um, it runs at a loss, all of us. So every team pretty much runs at a loss. I think Exeter um, hit, uh, hit positive a couple of times a few years ago, but... Um, their owner put 16 million into them in the last couple of years, I think was the number. Um, you know, it requires a huge amount of money to keep going. And there's a level, a high level of frustration that um, you promote players to play for England and then they don't get to play for their club often enough. And there's a frustration for that. So I, I think the idea of making that league either smaller or having less games in it, <clears throat> that two pools of eight or whatever way you do it, makes an awful lot of sense because it then means that the top players can be seen to play for the club. I mean, I think if you put it to the soccer view and if you said that if you were playing international um, soccer and you couldn't then play for Man United, I think Man United fans would be pretty upset, you know, and I think that that's the nature of it. And it's it's trying to find some level of a balance in the game and the balance just isn't there yet because of the pressures that they're under. So I would, you know, I think there's elements of blame and fault, but actually the reality of this is that the amount of money that's available for the game is very large in France. It's pretty large in the UK and it's still not making money. And it's decent in Ireland because of the structure that we have with the IRFU. Um, But elsewhere, it's very vulnerable, you know. So, you know, you have to try and make certain that you're you're getting your top players being, being seen and playing and maybe not playing them too much. So, look, I... 
I think at the start of COVID, we said that, yeah, this was a chance. This could be an inflection point for the history of the game as to how it could change and become fully sustainable. So it has to be sustainable financially. It also has to be sustainable for, for its players and, and people. Um, and I think the harsh reality of of commercialism and finance and the knock-on effect that COVID had has maybe accelerated the pressure that all these clubs and the game is under. Keith, it's interesting as well, even away from the professional game. Like there was, I was reading a good piece in the, uh, I think it was in the Times this morning from uh, from Owen Slot. Diehards might not like it, but this change could save the sport. He was talking about uh, community clubs as opposed to professional clubs in, in England. Um, I guess being instructed potentially by the RFU to introduce different forms of rugby, whether it be touch rugby or walking rugby, to offer alternatives to the to the fifteen game game. Um, like, what's your take on that? Like, I know it's probably it's not an identity crisis for rugby in England, but it's an it's an important question to be answered over here as well. Keeping people at a community level involved in rugby and interested, I guess. Look, I've been a fan of that for for years. I mean, and, and I know we discussed that in the past and. Um, I think rugby is an incredible game. Actually, touch rugby would have been the start and end of the vast majority of the training sessions we did over in Quinns um, back in the day. And it, there's a bit of joy and fun in that without the hefty contact. So I do think more people will get into it. It's uh, like some of the tag rugby I was never quite fan of because it was a bit different. You have a different movement to, to touch rugby. But actually, if you get yourself into a position where you have this absolute skills-based handling element, I think that is essential. I, I've also been keen on having some of the changes between uh, law changes that happen at, at professional rugby not necessarily having to be put into the community game. I do think that there's elements, there's those things that can be taught after the fact if needed and if players progress up to the professional game. And I know that makes it a little bit hard, but I don't think that that's... I don't think that's a problem. I think you want people to play it and enjoy it and be safe doing so. And um, but we and if we do want more people playing, I think if you have people playing touch rugby, I think they still get every part of the rugby apart from the the big smashing, you know. And you know, we think that the big smashing is a bit of an issue at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, we can come back to this because it it does it is pushing the rock up the hill. Um, the actual performance on the pitch. Let's start with Munster. Uh, it's been a slow start to the season. I mean, I made the point that I don't think we should get too carried away just yet. And at the same time, um, there's always a little a little kind of uh, bit of concern when you lose your two games and you're the team that is the one that gets beaten for the first time in a decade and uh, lets the opposition win their first game in 18 months or however long it was. So uh, Dragons was one of those performances that doesn't look good on the record books, but at the same time, the players, are, the main players are just back. It was the first time that many of them were getting any game time. Should we be concerned yet? Um, I think you, you, you should be concerned over the performance. Um, how concerned we'll, we'll see in the next few weeks, actually. And... Look, I think there's a change happening there. I think they're working unbelievably hard from what I hear. Um, Training-wise, it is incredibly, incredibly taxing. And whether it's the fact that they may have taken um, a couple of these games for granted and always presumed that they were going to get the win, and you know sometimes that can 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 leak in, and especially if you're pushing it very hard. I think Munster are trying to make a change, and, and we're not seeing it enough. But what we are seeing is a little bit of a lack of certainty. Uh, for the players on the field because of the change. Um, 
I just noticed uh, in the Dragons game, like, like I thought Ben Healy played pretty well, but he also played quite deep because they're trying to make certain that they get the ball through the hands enough, but they became a little bit lateral with it. And that just takes time. And I think once you get all the players uh, on the one page, once they get sharp enough from their training, um, I still think there'll be hiccups during the season, but I do think that that change will take a period of time to go. So am I worried looking at it? No, I was just disappointed watching the performance. I thought it was poor. Um, uh, I thought the handling was poor. I thought the discipline was poor, you know, and they need to sort those things out. And there are things that can be sorted out pretty quickly. The the only issue is you see these as a couple of easier games. Um, this game coming up at the weekend would be considered an easier game. And then you have a flurry of really tough games. So, yeah, I think it's hard. It's a very hard start when you don't get those wins. And I think Munster might have relied on the fact that actually if they got three wins off at the start, they could deal with some of the tougher games as they came along. But look, I still see there is a bit of progression, though at times they drift back into old habits. But it'll take a while to move on. That's the thing, isn't it? That actually what we're trying to do is, is uh, see the trends evolving that we're going to hopefully uh, witness over the next 12 months, 24 months, 36 months. That this isn't going to be a oh, a, a, a flitch, a switch has been flicked and all of a sudden Munster are the finished article. It doesn't work like that in sports. No, no, it doesn't. And it doesn't work from for a side that's pretty much kicked all its possession last year, you know. So um, you're trying to make a change in that. It's going away from things that have been almost bred into the team for the last period of time. And like, there's lots of say, comments of people would say that that's the way Munster always played. It, it wasn't. And, and Munster often integrated well. It's trying to get that balance right. And the balance for me has been wrong for the last while. I just thought it was too conservative too often. So you're now stuck in that mindset. It takes a while to get out of it. So I think it's a tough job for, for, for Graham Roundtree. And it's tough when you have an expectation that players will react quickly. Um, I think they are trying to react, actually. But I just don't think that the, I won't say attitude, but the the attention to that detail under pressure is good enough. So I think Munster will be under pressure for a while. Um, but I would expect them to dig themselves out of it. I don't know what that means but I don't know whether that means for this year or for the next year. But I look, it's the start of a change. And that's something that's, that's look, we've all said has been needed. I saw Donnick O'Callaghan uh, at one point, Keith, after the game saying, you know, you, you really have to blame players and you can't always go to the coaching ticket after a performance like that of Munsters last weekend. Um, and even just funnily reading that in, in this morning's paper, one of the papers had uh, a reference to the Tuesday morning murder ball in, in, in Munster trainings under, you know, Declan Kidney and Axel Foley, where after a poor performance, there used to be a, a wake up call, uh, let's say, after the weekend. So how do players in this Munster team be, be made aware that, that last, last last week's performance wasn't acceptable like it, does there have to be a I guess a kick up the ass in training this week or what way would, would you approach it no, I don't think there has to be do you, do you honestly think any player doesn't know when they haven't played well or a team doesn't know when they haven't played well there isn't a head in the sand idea um, I think it becomes difficult for at different times when you're making a big change as to wanting to do something and then falling back into times past and even if you look at um, Ireland under Andy Farrell after Joe Schmidt it took a period of time for a lot of those things to happen and actually Ireland played in the same manner as they did under Joe Schmidt for about seven or eight games and it took a while for that to change it takes time 
And um, but I, look, I think the players are fully aware, and, and the players want to win, and they want to be excited by it. And um, it's just it's been slow. I mean, it's frustrating for fans, frustrating for all of us, you know, watching because you want to you want to see them play well. But I think it takes a long period of time. And actually, if I was to give a better uh, idea, and I know it's done for different reasons and done in a different way, but when you look at the way Ulster have progressed over the last number of years. And you look at the manner in which they're playing now, they couldn't do that a few years ago. Now, you might have said they didn't have the players and maybe they had to develop players to be that way. That could be the case for Munster as well. But you watch Ulster playing today and they're a joy to watch. Yeah, so and that has to be a, a part of the template for Munster into the future. One of the other templates, obviously, is, is what's happened at, at um, Leinster. Lancaster's going, that's been confirmed you know, I think nobody at Leinster or a Leinster supporters or even in Irish rugby will begrudge him the opportunity to go and be the lead at a club like Racing. He absolutely deserves that opportunity. For Leinster, what kind of an opportunity is this? Where should they be looking for the next Stuart Lancaster? Should they be looking internally to promote somebody and say, right, that's the opportunity for anybody who's involved in our coaching team now? Or should they be looking globally and saying... This is an opportunity for us to get another world-class coach to come in and again change the course of Leinster's future. Um, I think they should be doing both. Um, and that's not sitting on the fence. I think they need to look at all their options. I think they're in a very strong position, the strongest position of any side in Ireland, in that they have an incredibly uh, well-honed, talented group of players with a steady stream of talent coming through the school system, uh, a lot of which the players are playing for Ireland. But there is... A huge amount of strength and depth. So when those players drift off, the squad that the new coach will will, will coach will be like a lot of them are internationalists as well. So uh, I think it's a, a plum job. And I, look, when they went and and went for for Lancaster, you know he was persona non grata. Um, the fact that Leinster searched him out. Um, with Leo Cullen, with Johnny Sexton, having conversations with him, I think they gauged him as a as a as a guy first. I mean, I don't know Stuart very well, but I've you know I've met him a, a good few times, and we've had some pretty decent conversations over his mindset. He was he was hurt and pretty vulnerable coming out of the uh, um, uh, the English setup, and he's mentioned that in, in a couple of things lately. But uh, he. His mindset is, is a coach. It was a, it was a, you know, an academy coach first and foremost. It was developing players. His the thing that sets him tick is, is developing players. I mean, he's spent a long time, seven, six or seven years in in Leinster. Um, it's about time for him, I suppose, to go back to the to the top job, to the number one job again. Um, though he'll have it, he'll have it difficult because he's been able to work pretty much under the radar. I think Leo Cullen has done an extraordinary job. So. Like if Leo still is still there, and I think it becomes very important that he is uh, signed on to a longer contract, that if he is there, I think you can manage whoever else you bring in, provided that they're the right person with the right fit. So there's a particular attitude that Leinster are looking for and which is heightening skills all the time. Um, a huge amount of personal development and leadership work, which Lancaster did, He's got, it's a big hole to fill. Yeah. So, but that's, and that's a big search, big search criteria to go and find a new coach. The the Leo point, I think, is is kind of a little bit understated in all this. Um, so, there's a new chief executive coming in from Google to Leinster to replace Mick Dawson. I think he doesn't start until next month, or, or certainly uh, later in, in Q4, as they would say. Uh, Leo's on a rolling contract. 
And I can see if you're Leo, you want to wait and see exactly what the new chief executive is like. You want to size him up from a professional perspective and go, I can work with this guy long term. Um, but at the same time, if I'm the new CEO, I'm coming in and going, I want Leo Cullen. I absolutely want Leo Cullen to be a bridge for now and into the future. And whatever job Leo wants in Leinster Rugby, he should be offered and given. So it's a big, big moment here. It's a big decision for the new chief executive to get right. Well, you know, whoever comes in as, as CEO in any organization, uh, in any sporting organization, they could be big fans of the sport, but they may not know the awkwardness of being a CEO of a sporting franchise. And um, uh, you need to have the rugby institutional memory. And that's what Leo has, but he has leadership as well. And look, I still think that he was under a lot of pressure himself when he came into the job. I think he's done an extraordinary job. And I think they would have liked to have won a couple of trophies last year and the year before. Um, but notwithstanding that, he has kept Leinster at the at the top of the tree uh, by shielding a huge amount of pressure off his, his, his coach, um, by manoeuvring, I think, a huge amount with Guy Easterby for their recruitment. I think they've done incredibly well. So, if, if I was the new CEO coming in, it's the first contract you'd be signing up. It'll cost him, I'd say, but um, no harm in that either. Yeah, OK. Keith, good stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers. Brilliant. Cheers, lads. It's uh, Keith Wood giving us his thoughts on the situation at the moment. We'll obviously keep a close eye on Ulster Leinster this weekend. We'll um, preview that in more detail with Quinny on tomorrow's show. We'll look back on it on Mondays as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just think that... Uh, because Lancaster got so much credit and rightly so for you know instilling so much of the the culture uh, Leo Cullen brought him in mm-hmm. Leo Cullen worked with him and Leo Cullen will be along ideally next year as well like, well if Leo Cullen was to leave as well that's a that's a double body blow um, like really interested to listen to, to Robbie Henshaw in his press conference the last couple of days Um like talking about the leadership of Stuart Lancaster, how much the players uh, fed into him and bought into him from the outset when he took over. Probably no surprise given his leadership qualities. But uh, he was asked about Johnny Sexton as well. And I think he, he half-jokingly suggested player coach for Johnny Sexton. Um, now we've said already he's probably going to be too busy for the next 12 months thinking about the small matter of a World Cup. But Yeah, well, you know, it all, it all aligns nicely. The World Cup will be over after the quarterfinal stage. More than likely you give him a few weeks off and you pitch him back in. As the, I mean, I don't know, Leo had already talked about him continuing his playing. So maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But uh, you, you do hold on to Cullen, though. I mean, you do everything you, in your power to hold on to Leo Cullen. Yeah. So um, the, blank checkbook. The, the new CEO has a big, big kind of... Yeah, so let's just fix this first. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a glaring thing though because when when you see Lancaster leaving and you know Cullen's contract is out next year, it really highlights the contract issue with Leo Cullen. Um, now, obviously, they'd, they'd have probably spoken about this behind the scenes as well. But uh, yeah, as you said, short Lancaster, let him go. It's four year, he's got four years of Racing. Sorry, um, plenty of time to. He's had plenty of time in Leinster. It's not, I don't think it's seven year itch either. I think he's he's had a good stint with Leinster. He's done what he what he needed to do, and it's just the next stage of his life. So yeah, fair play. Par- Paris is is nice. It turns out <laughs> eight thirty three this morning. Uh, OTBIM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today. Here's some Kenny Cunningham goodness from last night. He was on talking about the crossword with Joe Malloy and Richie McCormick back with the sports pages after this
you've got the crossword, which is exciting. Now, in a moment, we'll get the listeners' help on the answers that you haven't been able to crack yourself. It's a bit embarrassing. No, no, no. There's a couple of hard ones I I don't mind, Tron, but there's a couple of easy ones I know I should get. If I give you the easy ones, people are going to think I'm I'm an idiot. They won't be far off. Can I I get you to do something first, though? I'll give you one. If you get it... No, listen. Then I know I'm an idiot. Just hang on a second. (laughs) Go ahead. I want you. What's your IQ? Have you ever had your IQ, Rich? Uh, you have a reasonably high IQ. One forty, one fifty, I think. Come here. No idea. No, no idea. idea, Kenny. But that tells no. me he's got an IQ. He hasn't gone searching. He can knows I, he's smart. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to prove. Can I it. just ask you a question? What did you say? One forty. Is one, that high? Is one forty high. high, Rich? One forty, pretty high. Yeah, yeah. Come here. Can I ask you a question? Can I ask you a question? You only got into minutes. He didn't get points. One forty. The arse. No way you're one forty IQ. Go on. <laughs> Woof, right. <laughs> Come on, Joe, we're going off air in five minutes. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> right, I know there's one there you got and you're see- you're quite proud of yourself that you got no, it. No, no, so no, no. Just really. let me finish. No, I want I you to give us the clue and see if me and Richie can get it. One that you got already. Give us a clue that'll test me and Richie and see if we can match you. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't be bad on, um, I suppose, uh, geography. You know, the b- b- basic geography. Just get on with it, Kenny, will you? All right, I'll give you one. I'll give you one. Uh, body of water off the northeast coast of Australia. Five tree. That's the look. Well, the tree is C. Yeah. What's the five, Rich? Off the north what of Australia? That's a 143 high Q for you. Three letters C. Northeast Tasman. coast. <laughs> no, it's oh, Jesus. Yay! That'd be good that'd be lord. South, that'd be South Australia. Was well, it five and three? Is it five and three? C, obviously <laughs> something C. Yeah. The northeast coast. So you're heading up towards uh, Asia. you know, Asian Malaysia. I'm, I'm telling you these because it's actually Indian. No, it's no oh, that's Indian whatsoever. Ocean. Indian Ocean. Go on, so your IQ has gone down by the by general by knowledge the isn't uh, reflected. Coral C. You were not going to get Coral. Come on. Okay, and you got that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's just one of those. Give us another one that you got then that you're happy with. I'll be happy with. I'll tell you what, I'll give you you these. um, Right, here's an easy one for you, like, just to get you. It's serious setback. So between the two years, right, you're on the buzzers, you two, right? It's serious setback, 4-4. Serious setback, 4-4. Oh, yeah, it's a... That was a real... Oh, what would you say a real a hammer what just to give you a hint trying to help you out here have you got a blow like where does where does a boxer take a blow oh. body blow hey, well oh, done Rich nice well done Rich thank god you got that not a chance Joe be here till 12 o'clock tonight you wouldn't have got that <laughs> <laughs> there are so many idiots out there so many spoofers there's a lot of horse I think he's a total spoofer. What should be a spoofer? He's a bullsh. Ah, no, I'm Come on, don't, don't be. No, I'm not. Yes. No. Right. Uh, so. We got a, a letter, old school letter, posted. It, it arrived with. Um, in a jiffy bag. Dear Jer. I thought I might add to the sports tat and memorabilia that adorn the shelves and walls of your off the ball studio. I mean, I'm already on board because it is tat. Most of it's tat. Yes, the Limerick-themed photos are shameless flag-waving on my part, but if you can look past that, one is a world-famous Hollywood actor wearing a GA jersey and the other is a League of Ireland team playing Real Madrid in the European Cup when such fixtures were possible in the pre-Champions League era. 
So I'll just show you. This is obviously. <coughs> I mean, oh yeah. Um, great man, Bill Murray. Who doesn't like a, a little bit of Bill Murray? A <laughs> uh, party animal, Bill Murray. And then the other thing is, um, it's a postcard from. European Cup first round first leg Limerick versus Real Madrid Lansdowne Road September 17th 1980 kick off 6pm obviously because it didn't have lights probably uh, or maybe did they have did they have floodlights in, in, I don't know but the thing is right so this arrived uh, in the middle of um, of last month and we're finally getting around to putting it up today because there's a documentary about that game that we're going to talk to the maker of and actually play the documentary out on the show today as well so uh, incredibly appropriate that it should arrive um, and also, uh, as for the VHS case of Kesarasra, I need not sell the reasons as to why you should get that on the shelf. Never pass a charity shop. The video cost me fifty cents. It's the case, obviously. Oh. We, we don't need we don't need the video. I don't. Have you ever seen this? No. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's definitely fan of videos though. It's definitely worth the watch. It's the official World Cup ninety video. Ah, um, oh, brilliant. A vague recollection of it being given out free if you bought like so everybody got new TVs in 1990 because up to that point you were like renting TVs they were yeah, so expensive yeah, yeah. and now everybody's like no the World Cup's out we're getting a good TV <laughs> like it was it, it you know the uh, oh you can trace back the birth of the Celtic Tiger to the Jack Charter it's actually like the massive amount of money that everybody spent to make sure that they weren't going to be left behind there were pubs charging in to watch the games at one stage yeah, and then yeah, it was yeah. like you can't do that uh, they were trying to get the investment that they made back in the big screen it's a bygone. It's a, an era where Nathan Murphy, I think, he says he used to sit outside the the video shop in Ballyhonnes and sit watching stuff uh, from outside through the window. Oh, little latchkey kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, a bygone era. Anyway, a big fan of the show and your passionate coverage of all sports. I hope you can find it in your heart to put them in your studio. Place them behind Joe and ask him to do a shout out to me and feed my ego on one of his Sunday paper reviews. My favourite segment on OTB says John Sheehan from Limerick. I don't think Joe's going to do that for you. He might. We'll we'll uh, we'll see. But certainly, all that tat is. Um, it's uh, very welcome and we're going to put it up so John Duggan is with us at 8.40 John good morning to you Jaron Shane has form what's going on uh, not a lot to be honest quiet enough ordinary time waiting for the North London Derby on Saturday and then the Manchester Derby on Sunday and the Ark on Sunday afternoon with Luxembourg the favourite for that so they're the kind of things in my head lads at the moment more so than what's happening today which is the Dunhill links with Rory Shane uh, Porter Carrington and Jonathan Colwell involved Rory's tune has changed a bit has it? A little bit of peace now. In, yeah. uh, but he's, he said that before. And he said it before and then he ripped into them the next yeah, day. Yeah, so the, uh, Rory has such no filter that a lot of what he comes out with, it could be anything from one day to the next. Now, I'm not saying that he has been consistent in his line, but sometimes he does swing back a bit. Um, and then another time he's absolutely ripping them to shreds. So um, I'm kind of tired of talking about it, to be honest. I know it's a big deal, but I suppose all of our time is spent now talking about Liv when... I don't know if you saw that Bryson Shambo awful video um, doing the rounds of him. I think he hit a, a rope last week or something, and oh. then he make, makes a joke with like in a real frat boy way of getting under the rope. It's just a no. dose. What a reaction! Yeah. What an overreaction! Sorry. Yeah, it's just it's just poor. Um, You'd rather talk about the burger scene in Dublin, John? I know that. I would. Yeah, I would rather talk about burgers. Um, than Kenny was talking about the burgers last night. Yeah, he's a big Bunsen fan, Kenny. Yeah, but like, um, his dash is his new thing. Dash is he's his got new a new thing. flame. Yeah, yeah. I had a dash for the first time about a month ago, and it was amazing. All right, so you're you're on the dash train too, massively. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize there was more than one of them. I thought they were exclusive to um, Cable Street. But there's one on Kevin Street and down around near Wexford Street. There. Right, that was the one Kenny was in. Yeah, it's not good, is it? I was in the Cable Street branch. Right. And uh, I was blew my head off to be honest. 
I've kind of gone off having fries with burgers. I just had like just had the burger. Oh, the hand cut fries I like with burgers. The, the, the Bunsen hand cut fries, all right. Describe the, if you could describe the burger to me, John and Dash. Um, it was a lovely bun first of all, and um, it is a smash burger. So they got to smash it down. There's a way of doing it, whatever way that the juices are cooked through the burger. So it's quite you know smashed down with the thing. Um, it wasn't too greasy, which I really like with the burger. Uh, good texture, good flavour. Um, and you felt that you wanted another one after having the first one. That's the problem, isn't it? Um, and that's <laughs> why I kind I of haven't, gone haven't off done it. But like, I, c- I can see how you would. Mm. I just, I just have, a, I just have a little second one. Yeah, and <laughs> not having the fries helps you have the second one. No, I didn't have the second one on the day, but I was, I felt, felt to myself, if I'm going to go back here, I'll have a second one. And you know, I don't think anybody should judge anybody who has a second burger. No, no. no. Um, who is anybody to judge anybody else in this world anymore? Each to their own. Well, that's it. And uh, given especially that I was carrying a lot of condition um, for the last few years and kind of lost that condition and put a little bit back on, but I understand conditioning in the burger sense. So, um, yeah, you can definitely easily fall into temptation of having a second one. Um, the, the overnight, the the death has occurred of um, Coolio, who was fifty nine. Mm. Um, is this a, a culturally significant moment for you, JD? Um, I remember it being in school. It was like seventeen. I think it was nineteen ninety five when Gangsters Paradise that song came out, and I just remember we were all in. I just remember we all. Did your leaving start that year? Yeah, around yeah. that time. I did the ninety six. Did my leaving? Right. I remember we were all in the kind of. Um, the common room, as it was called in school, and we were all now getting out of uniforms. So I just remember that time when we were beginning to become, you know, we're transitioning from kids to adults, and uh, it was a bit more of a, you know, a, a cool atmosphere. And Gangsters Paradise was in the charts. I remember at the time. So would I've been, uh, would I've known the music very well? Not, not very well. I was a pirate radio DJ back then. Right in the shed in uh, in in Bally, in Ballybrack. Yeah. On what in, station? On um, Coast FM, it was called. Right. What um, were you playing? Um, more pop stuff, I would say, in the 80s. Um, Rick Astley? Uh, probably a bit more. I was probably fancy myself as a bit more of a an, an 80s alternative connoisseur than Rick Astley. But, um, so go on, what, what like? Um, I and are you playing vinyl? Uh, playing vinyl, yeah. So do you have all that vinyl still? Uh, no, because I was, I was in a French shed. Okay. Uh, and we had a, it was a pirate radio station that broadcast around Dublin. Um, it was on, on air for four years, 1992 to 96. You must have had an on-air persona. Like, did you wear a hat and... The whole lot? Uh, no hat. Um, that would have been a good opportunity to, to start your branding with the hat. Yeah. But come here, an on-air persona indeed. What was your name? Mike Anderson. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> what? Wow. Mike Anderson. It's a terrible name. Just absolutely terrible. It's just a normal name. <laughs> it's not even like a... Well, we, 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 it's, but it's not kind of um, Bob Soul or anything like that. It's, it's just... We all had these, these names. Like one of the lads, my friend, he took one of his names out of the death notices. So um, th- that's how it kind Are of. Are we went. always Mike Anderson? You never changed. I, was, I never changed. Never yeah. changed. I was like I was a teenager. You know, I didn't know. I was I was young and uh, I was young and irresponsible. All the world is, is your oyster, oh. and you're like, I'll pick Mike Anderson. Yeah, this is a horrific name to pick, but you know, you, that's <laughs> it's not that bad. Uh, I, I think it's awful. I think it's awful. I, that is fantastic. Wow. And would Mike Anderson ever make a comeback? Uh, no, no, I don't think. Would you so. not do now Friday night eighties on, on today? Well, I actually offered to do one. Um, I, don't, I don't know how it worked. They out politely declined, did they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was rejected. The, uh, the, uh, the email went into the spam. Yeah, yeah. Well, Coolio picked a good, like his real name was Artist Leon Ivy Junior. So Coolio is a good pick. You, you could have picked a one word kind of. Well, the good thing about Mike Anderson it was M I C. So um, ah, okay, uh, this is yeah, the yeah, plot thickens. Yeah, yeah. I uh, used so good to Phil Cawley all the time on Friday night eighties and just chat to him and almost like, would you play that? Would you play that? <laughs> 
on uh, air. No, well, I'd, you, you were like one songs. of those. You were like one of those girls, the DJ boss, going play, play something good. Yeah, because I'd be going between producing shows and going in there and feel. Oh, so like, would you play the twelve inch of um, I don't know, Furniture's Brilliant Mind or something like that. Um, so yeah, no, my eighties is is a, quite an alternative. Jeez, um, I, I thought I knew you, John, from working with you. For you the don't last know, nobody years knows, nobody I, like. I don't people, know you at all. People, no. people that are just uh, you know, we're all icebergs here. <laughs> you only know the surface of a of a Shane or a Jer or a John. We are all multitudes, I believe, is the phrase to yeah, share. Wow. The, uh, the Coolio story, of course, that um, that we all uh, remember from the sporting sphere was the German Connolly one. Oh, Connolly uh, sorry. This, there is a... Re- there is a, re- there is a link. Bringing up this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that the quotes, the quotes, he was obviously... He was at uh, Leopardstown a few years ago. I think this was 2019, yeah, when German Connolly was on his exodus from Dublin football. And Coolio's quotes, if I saw him, I'd say, German, look, they want you to come back to the team, man. They need you. Dublin is counting on you. Come on back and do what you do. If not, if you try some American football, I'd like to see him do that either. Went on to say, maybe they'll let me and Jermit on the offensive line and we could try out a few players together. I'd love to try play Gaelic, but I'm way too old. I'd probably get broke up. So just the fact that um, Coolio had a had a take on Jermit Connolly at the time was quite quite interesting. It's also made me nostalgic. Coolio's passing for Keenan and Kel. Great show in the mid-90s. Um, Keenan being the smarter of the two mates and Kel was kind of the, the, the idiotic foil. Um, and Coolio did the the uh, the famous and very very catchy theme tune for that uh, for that show. Um, yeah, it's it, it was a classic. Who loves orange soda? I think was the was the great line from it. You lads are looking la- at me like I've no, six heads here. I remember Keenan and Kel. I actually I, I, I wasn't really into the show that much. I thought they're uh, what was the Good Burger thing? What was that? Was that the after or before? Colin might know. Ah, uh, we don't know. Okay, after after. Okay, I have a vague recollection of that period. I yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it was Dangerous Minds it was the movie wasn't it that's Google. right yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer yeah and yeah. Uh, yeah about was it Going Straight or something I think um, yeah but I kind of missed out on that Coolio thing but uh, may rest in peace sad news mm. real 90s nostalgia uh, Coolio yeah he brings back he, he's been doing the kind of the circuit the, the festival and college circuit in recent years uh, not really a fall from grace but I know he's done different colleges well, right that's yeah, okay. yeah. a little bit didn't he have a didn't he have a row with the um, was it the Talking Bollocks lads or uh, certainly, he was he was in the building recently and, and took exception to the suggestion in the style of Damien Duff, Sleeping Giant. Right, yes. Giving it to Johnny Ward, uh, he gave it to the lads, but I think he might have fallen asleep in the middle of the interview as well. So yeah, yeah. Um, but it makes it more interesting from their from their perspective, I guess. Uh, an interesting interviewee. Yeah. But um, yeah, sad news to wake up to this morning. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah. <laughs> your Coolio fight, like well, I mean, the song was it was your like, vintage. The, the song was. Um, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it was it was everywhere, right? And it, it yeah. survived, but it's definitely like one hit wonder territory. Yeah, one hundred percent. So uh, he won a Grammy, I think, Julio as well for that, or for something I else. assume for that. Uh, don't quote me on that, but he, well, he definitely won a Grammy. What would be on your pirate radio then playlist, lads? <sighs> um, anything that was on the Fanning Fab Fifty from nineteen ninety three to nineteen ninety six. My music tastes are too are too like wide and varied. I'd listen to Fleetwood Mac. I'd listen to uh, Willie Nelson, Luke Holmes, uh, Chasing Abbey. Like I, I have an absolutely. There's no link to my to my music tastes. But a lot of rap. I'd listen to a lot of rap as well. My younger brother got me into the rap big time. Is that Kenny Rogers? No, not Kenny Rogers. Uh, Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson. Uh, saw Willie Nelson live in Austin a couple of years ago. Quite an experience. Um, 
and yeah, that type of music. I'm a big country fan. No, not a Garth Brooks fan. I know Jerry with the checkered shirt this morning and the the Garth Brooks appearance a couple of weeks ago. You'd be more of that that uh, vintage, but uh, yeah, I, I have no. If someone asks me what's your favorite type of music, that there's just there's no pinpointing it because a little bit of everything. That's are you still into that stuff, John? The the eighties, Mike Anderson, the the Mike Anderson genre. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I love eighties music, uh, like Depeche Mode and. Uh, you know, the Smiths, that kind of music. I was listening to specials the last few days, beginning to two-tone. Um, yeah, no, anything kind of, anything unusual. Did I'll, Mike, did Mike Anderson it. talk like you talked, or did Mike Anderson No, Mike Anderson radio? hadn't, his voice hadn't broken. <laughs> right, wow. And did he have a mid-Atlantic twang on purpose? Uh, no, I don't know, it's no, I hear it's no, uh, Tori Amos. Uh, so. <laughs> I was going to ask for an impression, but oh, thankfully wow. it yeah. came readily. Yeah. And are there any, are there any tapes extant? Uh, that, that's a good question. I might, I might try. I might, oh, I you should put them see. up. Yeah. Social media gold, JD. Well, yeah. All about them clicks. Yeah, the Blackboard Jungle was enough. I think that was enough. Um, How far did you get? Not very far. We messed up the buzz around the second time. Um, so two rounds? Two rounds, yeah. It was pretty shameful. Well, we were probably on the same season, I'd say. <clears throat> I was leaving cert. Were you leaving cert or... Fifth year. Uh, fifth year. Were you on we it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were beating, you, how far did you get? Beat in the first round. Right. By the eventual champions. Did you do the specialist topic? Uh, I didn't do the specialist topic. Yeah. I um, did sport and I did okay. So I don't know what you're five talking about. Five out of six or six, six out of six? Six, six. Yeah. six out of six. Yeah. Well, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did, I do the special, did I do the specialist? I don't think I did the specialist round. Um, but no, I definitely got one wrong that cost us. And, and Ray Darcy screwed us out of it. Yeah. Took, took the first answer when your man changed his answer in the middle of it. Yeah, and, and we got beaten by that one point deduction actually giving us those two. We would have St. Peter's of Wexford won it. And I remember uh, a freshers week bumping into the guy from the winning team and they won the minibus. I was Awkward. Like, sickened. What would your, what would your um, mastermind subject be, Jer? I want both of your answers in this, in fact. <sighs> no idea. Um, That's a question. It would all, have to all be adults something need to know. It would have to be like uh, something circa 88, 89, 90 when I was at my most. Like, I'm, there's nothing in my life except the, these little tabs that you push up and down to <laughs> reflect the position of each team in the league. I think I'd have to, I'd have to pick the moon, Apollo moon landings or else the Easter rising. Shoot player ratings for Stan Collymore's career <laughs> while at... Well, I get Bradford before he moved to Forest or Forest. Yeah, yeah. John, you're, you're bound to have an interesting one. Uh, US presidents, maybe, or um, maybe, I don't know, Sporting Years. Mm. Cheltenham Festival from... Sporting Years. Sporting I mean, years. always when I, uh, you know, it was my, when I was younger and trying to impress people, I go, well, just give me a year and I'll tell you anything that happened. I can't remember anything that happened in any specific year ever. So I can't tell you what, like, I, I, eventually I'll be able to work out 2017. Okay, so I know the Dubs have won something that year, but which, which is that the year of the own goals? Is that the year of the GPS? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, the the GPS. that's the year of the GPS, yeah. 117, 116, yeah. And so Galway win the hurling? Yeah. Who wins the FA Cup? Is he the, the, I think Arsenal won it that year, did they? I don't remember anything about the FA Cup anymore. I, I, do, I, rem- know, I like, do remember that the, um, the hurling was 26 points to 17. <laughs> it's an encyclopedic kind it's of it's Galway beaten Waterford okay right there you go but the FA Cup it's, it's, it is funny though with your brain cells and alcohol the, the, the most recent years get harder yes than the ones that's not the, that funny that's, it's kind of it's traumatising and also that's a direct correlation <laughs> yeah <laughs> John All right, lads. John good stuff more from John Duggan on Saturday afternoon and off the ball on News Talk of course from 1 o'clock to 5 make sure you're tuned in you can get him on uh, Twitter as well OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today at 8.53 we're live on the line now with Galway's own Katie O'Brien who 
who cruised to victory in the final of the PR2 single skulls at the World Rowing Championships in the Czech Republic last Friday. Katie, how are you? I'm great, I'm great. How are you getting on? Yeah, good. What does it mean to feel like a world champion? <laughs> uh, what does it mean? Uh, means, it means everything, I suppose, because it's, you know, it's what I've been working towards and dreaming of for the last while. So, yeah, it means, it means a lot. You absolutely crushed the field in the final. It wasn't close. How does, like, that bit where you're like, this is going okay, things are going well. When do you begin to enjoy it? Is it, is it actually when you finish or is there a little minute beforehand where you're going, I'm going to win this, this is great? No, it's not until you cross the line, definitely. Because it felt, it's funny, it really felt like she was so much closer than she actually was. Like I'd, I was I was sure it was only, you know, like a second or two off. So I was kind of pushing right up until maybe 1,500 metres in, into the race. And then I could see, I was like, okay, there is a bit of water between us there now. So I'm just going to hold on here now and not push it because I was afraid if I kept pushing, then I, you know, you know, I'd, I'd lose it. So um, I was just kind of holding on then for the last 500 metres, just hoping that, that that gap would stay the same. It's, oh, sorry, go on, it's not a It's not a short race. It's nine minutes and 20 seconds. Like, that's a long time for you to be alone on the water with your thoughts. <laughs> In this case, crushing your opponent. But also, like, that psychology of that, like, when to push, when not to push. I mean, um, you know, m- most sports people, the, the key moments happen really quickly, but yours must happen a little bit in slow motion. Yeah, I suppose. Well, in in fairness, you'd have a lot of practice, really, like, um, you know, race, doing race pieces and things. So you are in some ways used to it. But um, yeah, like it is a lot of time to think like you, you've nearly got full 10 minutes to think. So um, some of it is spent, you know, just thinking about the next stroke and thinking about, you know, what you plan to think about. You, you have planned like I would always break the race down and kind of have a plan of, you know, this 500 meters are going to do this. The next 500 meters are going to do that. Um, but obviously, you, your mind can stray and you can start thinking about other random things. But uh, yeah, you are like, I would have raced um, Kat, the Australian, um, back in 2019 when she won. And you know, when she won, I think she would have been maybe 30, 30, almost 30, if not more, seconds quicker than me then. Um, so when I was, you know, beating her and it was kind of, you, you know, you'd have moments of just being like, well, this is, this is great. This is, this is what I'd hoped. <laughs> Cause you know, you don't know you're train, like you train a lot by yourselves and there isn't many power hours in Ireland. So it's kind of, yeah, you know how you, you know, you're improving all the time, but you've no direct comparison of, you know, is she improving all the time or how is, how are her, her scores or how are her times? So like, yeah, you put the work in and yeah, you hope you're up there and, and you know, that you're going to be up there with the best, but you don't actually actually know till the day on the water so there's a bit of like oh this is great this is going to plan so yeah you do be thinking about that kind of thing as well <laughs> Kat Rossi you mentioned there Giddy uh, the Australian like she, she's been very dominant and I know you've, you've been wanting to beat her for, for some time and physical presence as well in the water and Paralympic champion and all that so how did, how did you manage to, to I guess plug that gap from, from 2019 to now because beating her on this stage is, is quite an achievement yeah, um, like she's an amazing athlete, and she's actually really lovely as well. And she'd be very supportive of of every all the other athletes because I suppose because para rowing is a bit of a minority sport. You know, we all kind of support each other. Um, and I suppose bridging the gap really was just consistent training, and I didn't let it slip even through COVID. I was stayed training. I didn't let it go when I heard twenty twenty world champs were cancelled. When I heard twenty twenty one 
World Champs were cancelled. You know, I didn't let it go. I yeah, I took my two or three weeks off to the, at the end of the season, but I just kept training. And um, every time that um, you know the the goalposts were moved, I just kept slogging away. And I think it's just that consistency, really. And you know, having the support of Galway Rowing Club, um, they were there the whole way. You know, I was whether I was training with the junior sixteen girls, whether I was training with the masters, whether you know, like I I was st- I'd still find a boat to try and chase down the car up. So. Um, you know, I was I was getting my placing in, I was getting my training in, and then the last few months with the you know coming up to competition, obviously training with um, Rowing Ireland and doing race pieces with them, you know, getting you in that racing form. Uh, I suppose all that had a had a big role to play, and coaches and all that, you know, just keep your head straight and yeah, just just to keep working really. And I just kept tipping away, and thankfully it all worked out. Yeah, I think when I when I last spoke to you, Katie, it was yourself and your brother Sean, maybe probably the outset of COVID potentially, but. I remember you talking about uh, the importance of Claren Bridge to you and, and I even saw on your Instagram, you know, your, the homecoming there in, in recent days. You had the Camogie team and the local school Wurra and even your, your neighbours as well from Stroud Valley. And it must have been quite special. Even the last time we spoke, I think you mentioned it, that, you know, when you were living up in Dublin, uh, how buzzing you'd be to be driving back home into Claren Bridge. So it must have been quite special to see that welcome in the last couple of days. Uh, it was unreal, yeah. When I drove past the primary school, all the kids were out with, uh, they'd all made Irish flags and they're all out like waving them. And I remember like being a young one in the school and, you know, different things happening, being out there with your flag and you'd be so excited. So it's so funny to be on the other side of it. Um, and yeah, then coming up to the top of the road and sure, all the neighbours that I've known, I mean, I've lived here since I was six months old. So, you know, I I know them all so well and it was amazing for them all to be up there and there was such a buzz like and you know, I was, I was just, it was class. And actually yesterday I went into the primary school and it was pandemonium, like all the kids were just roaring and they'd all made me signs. And um, I got photos of them on my phone there. They're unbelievable, like all little drawings and all really like uh, personal like messages. It's class, you know, so it's, again, Clarenbridge is just an unbelievable place and everyone is just uh, so supportive of, of anything that anyone does. So yeah, it was, it was really cool. It was really, really cool. There must be something in the water in Clarenbridge. It seems to be pretty good at sport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, plenty good hurling anyway, yeah. <laughs> Occasional footballers too. That's true. <clears throat> um, come here, what difference does this now make for um, your plans for the next couple of years in terms of the Olympics and all that kind of stuff? Because obviously, as you said, with COVID, there wasn't an opportunity for you to really test yourself as often as you want to against the world's best. But now that you've done this, like, does it change anything? Were you already headed towards the Olympics anyway, thinking, right, my plan is set, irrespective, this is a staging post. What does it do for you? So, unfortunately, the single isn't a class at the Paralympics, so it has to be the double. But thankfully, I found a rowing partner now, Stephen McGowan from Roscommon. So uh, we also competed in the double schools there at the Worlds and placed in fifth, which puts us in a really positive position for trying to qualify this time next year for the Paralympics 2024. So really now my, I'm kind of tunnel vision on the on the double and trying to get that qualified for Paris uh, 2024. You know, it's like the single is always something I wanted to do. And because I've put so much time into the single over the last few years, it's great to kind of tick that box off. Um, but yeah, now, now it's kind of laser focus and um, moving on to the Paralympic dream and not just the, the World Championship dream. And it, it, does it help with funding as well from Sport Ireland? <clears throat> Pardon me. And even Yeah, that'll be the hope, you know, now that we've shown that we actually have a bit of, you know, there's 
there's a promise there that, you know, we aren't just two people in a boat that we've shown that we're up there with the best. I mean, the in the A final there, all the boats that we were racing have been at the Paralympics. Some have medaled at the Paralympics. So, you know, we're right up there with, with the best, which is which is really, really good. And obviously, like, you know, there's still time for other crews to, to enter and other countries, other nations to, to put up crews against us too. And obviously everybody's going to be working hard over the next year, but it's still really, really positive that we're already up there, you know, in the top five boats in the world at the moment and what, so, yeah it's, it's positive for us yeah. you, you talked about the, the gap in the singles that you had to overcome what's the gap in the doubles that you'll need to overcome to, to get into the medal positions what was the winner how far behind the winner for example were you on that one so I think the winner was an 8.24 maybe and I think we were an 8.36 so it's a 12 second gap so you know like at the start of the year as well we were racing the very same crews and it was a 20 something second gap so we've already half that gap so the hope would be you know over the next few months we can do the same again so you're on track what's it like to be part of this rowing team at the moment where like literally everybody seems to be world class so uh, I'd say it's a double edge where it's like oh geez I better not let this team down but also look at this team I'm part of ah yeah no to be honest it's, it's only positive like you're I can't explain how buzzing you'd be to see your other teammates uh, doing so well, like, because you know what work and what hours they've put in and you've all been through that slog together and you've all been, you know, the highs and the lows before it. And um, you've seen, you've just, it's it's just this, the total appreciation for what they've done. And then to see them reap the awards is unbelievable. Um, it's There's kind of an electric atmosphere around when, you know, when crews are doing so well. And it's just such an inspiration for yourself as well, like watching the other crews on the podium, just being like, wow, like, you know, that's so cool. I, I really want to do that myself. So yeah, it's just total inspiration from the rest of the 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 crew and they're also just really lovely people like I've made some unbelievable friends like I've known some of them obviously before this camp but some I hadn't and like we all got on so well like so much crack um, even just training is good fun and sitting around having dinner is good crack and then obviously the nights out after were brilliant too so yeah no they're a lovely bunch to be a part of and absolutely just so lucky to be to be part of such a cool team Yeah the women's fours even like such an inspiration all four of them even last weekend just incredible what they've, what they've been doing over the last couple of years but uh, Paula Donovan and Fit McCarthy as well like I mean Katie like Paul, what, what impact does Paul have on the rest of the team because I mean if he was any more laid back he'd be lying down but it obviously leads to the rest of the team maybe being probably more relaxed because he, he is so relaxed and has that kind of influence on everyone else Ah, uh, yeah, he's genuinely such a sound lad. He's 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 really, really, really nice guy. Um, and I always would have great chat, you know, over dinner with him. Um, yeah, he's. I mean, he's such a good example of how to do it. Really, just go in, get the job done, and walk away then with your medal. So, yeah, if we could all embody Paul's uh, relaxedness and uh, success, it would be a great thing. <laughs> your your background as a veterinarian as well, Katie. Like, how how have you been managed to balance that with the, with the rowing? Because obviously, both both fairly time time consuming, you'd imagine. Yeah. So up until February, I was working full time out in Tume and Galway in Canavans. Oh, kind of, uh, and uh, I, I kind of, I just had to, I had to, I had to step away because I couldn't, I couldn't keep it up. You know, I went part time as well for for a while, but it's just so demanding, especially then coming up to competition there. 
Um, you know, like I, 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 it was just, it was, it was too much trying to fit in two sessions a day and also do it like, you know, I felt like I wasn't giving either my foot, my, my best or full attention. So I ended up in February then stepping away from it. Um, I'll definitely be going back to it. I absolutely love veterinary and, you know, I great crack out in Canavan. So, um, I'd be looking forward to getting back to it, but it won't probably won't be for the foreseeable until I, you know, I, I kind of take off the rowing and, and, and finish in with that. And are you like a, a every every animal vet? Are you like is it kind of pets coming in or is it farm? What what type of veterinary is it? So uh, in cannabis, we were mixed practice. I did most of the smalls. Um, you know there was but if and if a farmer came in then with like a lamb or a calf, you know I'd try and help them out a bit with that. But I was doing mostly smalls in cannabis. But it is a mixed animal practice vet. They do they do absolutely everything. Yeah. Okay, so that like that obviously is um, requires massive brain power. But I guess it's also something that as you build up your experience, you just get better at, and it becomes you become more comfortable as time goes on. Is that the value of the experience? Ah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Like, and um, I think having, you know, mentors in it as well are really important. So, you know, they're great for teaching you and helping you out with cases and stuff. But yeah, definitely something you just become more and more comfortable with. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I only worked for just over a year. So because I only had finished college just previous to that. So, right. um, yeah, like I have a year under my belt now, which is great, because I think if I hadn't worked, I'd have been a bit anxious being like, oh, God, can I actually be a vet? But yeah, no, it was, it's great to get, the, get to get a year's work done. And I can kind of I'm happy now that you know i have the basics and going back to it hopefully hopefully isn't too difficult i was gonna say because like there's a, a lot of conversations that we've been having over the years with athletes who chased the olympic dream and did nothing but chase the olympic dream and then got there and were like finished and we're like yeah that was amazing but mm-hmm. then immediately afterwards we're like oh what's next whereas you now are totally free like because yeah. you have something to fall back on and I, I know everybody's athletic journey is their own individual journey and you can't say one size fits all but like yours is a great model where, you know, keep training in whatever career you want to be in while at the same time being as good an athlete as you possibly can. Oh, yeah. In fairness, I am delighted now that I did my degree and kind of have that there in the back pocket. You know, it's great safety net that, you know, when this does end, this dream does end, you know, I have that. And it, it's another dream. I mean, when I was a young kid, I always wanted to be a vet. So I, I'm in a seriously fortunate position that either road I go down, I'm going to be very happy on. So, yeah, it's great to have it in the back pocket. And yeah, definitely. Yeah, you had the background as well, Katie, in, in, in horse riding, I know, as well. Like, was, was there ever a decision to be made? I know, speaking to you before, the 2012, 2012 Paralympics were a bit of a turning point for you but was that a tough decision to kind of choose rowing over over other potential sports? Um, I think it was actually made quite easy because when I was doing horse riding I was kind of doing like cross country or show jumping um, so the Paralympics doesn't have either of those events the equestrian event is dressage and it wouldn't have been my favourite aspect of horse riding I've done very little of it and it's very difficult so uh, yeah it wasn't it wasn't really for me um, so then that kind of ruled that out. And so, yeah, I went up to that sports day in UCD where they had all the Paralympic sports and tried rowing and was asked back. So that was kind of just, it was a fairly, it wasn't, it wasn't really a conscious decision. It kind of just happened. And yeah, so. So it's a talent recruitment day that you saw advertised and decided I'm going to go up. Yeah, yeah. So myself and my dad were watching the Paralympics and I actually emailed them with him while we were watching it. Um, uh, I found the email and the date. It's so funny. It's literally in the middle of the, the Paralympics, 10 years ago this month. Um, and we sent the email and I got, I heard back from them three weeks later and was down at the Paralympic Talent Search Day three weeks after that. So um, it all just kind of fell into place, really, you know. Um, but yeah. 
Well, that's mad, isn't it? Like, you know, a, a teenager gets inspired by watching something on TV and it changes the course of your life. Completely, yeah. yeah. Like, had we not sent that email, I probably wouldn't be rowing. And, and I didn't really even know what rowing was. And yeah, I was just completely inspired by watching the Paralympics in 2012. And I didn't even, like, I was into horse riding at the time and it wasn't, you know, that like, I, even in the email I said, it's not that I definitely want to do horse riding. I just want to do the Paralympics. So, you know, like, that's how, that's how, um, you know, it, I suppose uh, inspired you can be as a, as a how, how your mind works as a, as a young person that, you know, watching something like that can change the direction of your life. It's the very definition of can't see, can't be. And it's why representation matters. And it's why coverage of your sport really matters because it can inspire future gen- generations. And like, you know, I mean, I, I don't think, I, maybe we don't talk enough about this stuff. Yeah, definitely. Like, um, and I think now it's amazing. I, I'm even wearing the jumper, but you know, her sport are doing such a great job for for women in sport, and they really are putting us into the you know, putting putting women who are doing so so amazing and have been doing so amazing for so long. They're finally kind of in the limelight, I suppose. And you know, athletes like Katie Taylor, who's one of my biggest inspirations and Sunita Paspore, another one of my biggest role models. Like, you know, it's great to see them getting recognition for what they're doing. And yeah, I suppose, um, like you said, just having those role models, it's, it's amazing what, what, what influence they can have on people. So yeah, it's really important. Do you understand that you're one of those now? <laughs> well, I, 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 that'd be a big, that'd be amazing if that's true. But yeah, that'd be, that'd be class. Well, it is totally true because, you know, um, <clears throat> like Paralympics, <clears throat> pardon me definitely needs its its ambassadors and you seem comfortable being an ambassador yeah absolutely I suppose when I was younger I didn't really there wasn't a huge amount of um, Paralympians in Ireland that were again you know being seen on TV and that so I would hope that even if there's one person or one child out there that I can um, you know some way kind of show what's out there for them that'll be that'll be pretty cool yeah even even in, within the family, Katie, I know you're you're a bit of an inspiration to your to your brother Sean as well. He said it on record many a time, um, and Sean obviously had to retire from from rugby fairly early uh, because of concussion last year. But uh, I'm, I'm sure that, you know the level of sport is still discussed quite widely quite widely in your house. And Sean is very proud of what you what, what you're after achieving as well last weekend. Ah, uh, yeah, he is. He's buzzing. Yeah, they all are. Sure, Mom and Sean and Evie, they were all out there, you know, supporting me. And it's it's like it ma- it makes the moment so much um, better having them there because you know it's because they've seen the work you put in as well, and you know you know they know how much it means as well. And uh, yeah, having the people you love the most in the world right beside you when you're doing what you love is is unbelievable. And um, my best friend as well, Roisin, she didn't tell me she was coming out. And when I was on the podium, I literally looked up to the crowd and there she was. I, I literally nearly collapsed, like she surprised me. So yeah, it's little things like that, having support from friends and family that make it all, you know, so much nicer and so much better. So yeah, it's really good. Well, listen, enjoy it and congratulations. It's a, a stunning achievement and it doesn't feel like it's the end at all. It feels like it's the start of something magical. So best of luck. Thank you very much and thanks for having me. That's uh, Katie O'Brien there, fresh from uh, gold in the World Championships and obviously we'll be keeping a close eye on the evolution of that time and closing the gap mm. on the uh, on the doubles. You can follow OTV across all our social channels and subscribe to the OTV Podcast Network for all the best in the latest sports content. We're back after these with Keen O'Connor. He's the director of Sit Down and Shut Up, a short documentary about Limerick FC's famous match against Real Madrid in the European Cup at Lansdowne Road. Can you see that there? Yeah, you can, yeah.
in September 1980. And we'll also show the documentary at the end of the show today after our chat with Kian. First, though, here's the new EU super featherweight champion, Eric Donovan, with Joe last night talking about climbing his own personal Everest and winning that fantastic bout at the weekend in Belfast. Back after these. Is that the most exciting, uh, wild, eventful fight you've been part of? Look, 30 years after walking into a boxing club, I had my greatest night in a boxing ring. You know, justification for me. All this turning professional at 31 years of age, a month before my 31st birthday, some people said, what's he doing? What's he? I was three years in retirement as well. You know, people wrap it up at 31. Some people are wrapped up long before 31, you know, professional careers. And, uh, you know, I had to deal with a lot of that. I also had to deal with the setbacks and the, the, the losses, the big losses, huge losses, you know, spectacular losses when you think about it. The Zalfa Barda and Ramirez, you know, but yeah. no one said, if you want to, if you want to, um, if you want to, uh, achieve big, you know, you have to be prepared to, uh, fall high, you know. And uh, there was times where I fell from a from a great height because um, I I dared to uh, to I dared for high altitude success, you know. And I got my I got my Everest, so I'm very happy. OTB AM. All right, 14 minutes past nine this Thursday morning. Now, sit down and shut up. Is an exciting new short documentary about when Limerick FC played football giants Real Madrid in the 1980 European Cup. It's a David versus Goliath tale about the opera of football, the city of Limerick. And a game that very few people remember, but three men can never forget. The documentary had its world premiere at the Galway Film Fla last year. And I'm delighted to say that the award-winning filmmaker, Keen O'Connor, is with us now. Keen, good morning to you. How are you? How's it going? Uh, good to see you guys. If I look tired, it's because it's 4am where I am, but I'm very happy to be here. We really appreciate you staying up for us. Uh, you're in New York. Yeah, yeah. I just realized when Cullum said uh, you're live from New York, I just realized how glamorous that sounds. But believe me, <laughs> my life isn't that glamorous. Um, tell us about this movie and when the idea to make a documentary about this game came to you. Well, so I originally I, I received funding for it from the it's a Limerick Arts Bursary funded short film uh, as part of Creative Limerick. And I received the funding for it in 2019 at the end of 2019. However, I actually, I suppose I got the idea many years previously. I went to school in Limerick. I'm from Kerry, but I went to school in Limerick. And I was in a taxi ride with a taxi driver. And the taxi driver was absolutely obsessed with Limerick FC. And you know how it is with Limerick people. Once you get them talking, they can't stop talking. And they started telling me all about the history of Limerick um, from when Pat Nolan exchanged shirts with Kevin Keegan when Limerick played Southampton to when Sam, Sam Allardyce started his first job for Limerick back in the 90s and then obviously when Limerick played Real Madrid. And when I heard it from him, I didn't believe him. And then flash forward a couple of years later, I was in film school and I remembered it. I, it that memory had flashed into my head. And I was like, did Limerick actually play Real Madrid or is that some weird fantasy dream I had? I looked it up. When I found out it was true, I just couldn't believe that no one had told the story before and, and that no one had heard about this game, to be honest. So that's kind of where it, what spurred it on. So that happens, right? And with any good idea, you're like, OK, this is definitely going to work. And then uh, in many cases, you can't find good characters to tell the story because, you know, ultimately not everybody is going to perform uh, in front of camera. You, on the other hand, got pretty lucky and found that there were three brilliant stories and three brilliant storytellers ready to speak. Exactly. And the thing about this film is what I've realized is that, you know, 
the three people we had, Des, uh, Des Kennedy, the goal, the striker for the team, Kevin Fitzpatrick, the goal, the goalkeeper, and Jai Matthews, um, the, the left back. I, it could have been any of the players. Do you know what I mean? I met a lot of the players. I met a lot of the fans. The first thing I did was I went to Markets Field. I didn't know anyone. But the first thing I did was I went to Markets Field. And, and even then, it was a hotbed of, of history of people who knew about that team and who knew about Limerick and who kind of loved football. It was kind of something else. So I met Des in his garage and from there it all opened up. But it, it really is something it really is something special out there. It's obviously Limerick is a sporting city. It's got the rugby, the hurling, but around that markets field, Gary Owen area, it really is soccer. Soccer is key. It's funny, Keane, because it's it's a film about a, a particular match, but in the end it it's it's almost more a film about the people of Limerick and the city of Limerick in itself. Yeah, one hundred percent. And and when we were making the film Obviously, Limerick FC were ceasing to exist. This was before Treaty United. And the main thing that stuck out to me was, you know, you have a sporting city without a soccer club and how sad that was. But at the same time, it shows how strong that community is from the grassroots upwards that even then they were still passionate about the club. And obviously with Treaty now, things are looking a lot better. Um, But it certainly is a document of that time for me. Uh how easy or otherwise is it to make a film like this? Because, you know, it involves getting footage from the game itself. I, I guess there's a, a bit of um, digging to do to make sure you're allowed to use it and then and actually sifting through the bits that you want to use. I would describe it as kind of like a detective or something like that. You know what I mean? You're basically digging through things, leading things to lead somewhere else. In regards to the footage, I'm not sure how much I can say about the, the footage that, that we use from the game, but essentially... A big worry of mine was, did UEFA own the footage? Um, you know, who who owns this footage of the game? But it turned out that they didn't own the footage. It was kind of lost in the continuum because it was such an old game and stuff like that. But even when it came to the other archive, you see a lot of stuff that was from a BBC broadcast um, about Pat Grace, which we only used a small bit of. Uh, we got that from Getty Images, but we only used a small bit, but it was more just kind of you'd see these small shards of information that would kind of tell a greater story. Like I also met some great archivists in Limerick who had just so much to see. And, and yeah, it's, I'd like to say that when you see the film, it does transport you back to that era, 1980s Limerick. And uh, hopefully the fun of that as much as anything like. So were you always a historian at heart or is that kind of something that you've uncovered about yourself while making this? Could you say that again? Sorry. Were you always a historian at heart? Like, is that who you is? That, are you naturally drawn to something as old as this, or is that something you discovered about yourself making this movie? I don't know if I'd be a historian at heart, but certainly for me, you know, once you have a good story, you want to you want to tell it right. <laughs> and I think this film would be nothing without the stories of the three three lads. <clears throat> you know what I mean? Um, I think those guys were really what made it human. And my job was really to present them in the best light and to get their story out there, you know, because we see a lot of sports documentaries. A lot of sports documentaries can be quite similar, a bit by the books. But the difference is with ours is that you have these three guys who, you know, Des Kennedy still works in his garage. Johnny Matthews is still uh, is still working in in his job. You know, they're still real guys and they really make it because they're so genuine and they just love telling the story. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the match itself and um, not to give too much away, but the match ends up getting played in, in Lansdowne instead of in Limerick. What, what's behind that? So essentially, um, it was very controversial at the time. Um, 
But what you had happening was it should have been played in Towman Park or Markets Field, but Towman Park was known for a lot of pitch invasions. Um, and as a result, back then, UEFA, if there was a pitch invasion back then, the game would be completely called off. And so because of the fears of this, as well as perhaps, uh, you know, some people behind Limerick FC being a bit greedy at the time, they thought, if we put it up in Dublin, we can probably get more from the gate receipts and we won't worry about the pitch invasions. But this turned into then a protest because the Limerick fans were not happy with this. And it ended up, it's not mentioned in the film, but there was very few people at the game. Apparently the atmosphere was was shocking. But obviously in the film, you don't want your atmosphere for your big game to be shocking. So we kind of left that out. Uh, but that's 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 how it is. And we also got George Hamilton to do the commentary. He didn't comment on the game. However, he was at the game. So we were able to chat about that and he re-recorded some, some commentary afterwards. Right. That's mad that um, Sir Real Madrid couldn't draw a crowd even amongst the Dublin football fans. Yeah, pretty much. Like I think back then, I mean, keep in mind, you know, football wasn't really shown 24-7 on TV like it is now. And so as a result, most of the teams that people knew would be Liverpool, or Nottingham Forest. These were the teams that people wanted to see from the Dublin crowd. No one really knew who Real Madrid are. And, and Des even says it himself. He didn't know who they were, just that they were this great team, you know. But those guys treated the game like any other game, you know. Was there anything else that kind of surprised you about um, when you started digging? You're like, hang on, this is mad. Certainly, uh, to be honest, the, 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 the Pat Grace uh, snack box KFC stuff, because... I, I'm a snack box man, I won't lie. I, I'm not really a spice bag guy. I'm more of a classic snack box guy. So That's the I, correct answer, always, by the way, Kian. That's the correct answer. Well done. <laughs> well, I was always intrigued by, uh, by, by snack boxes and how the hell that thing came to be in Ireland. And I wanted to do a documentary on that secretly in, in my heart of hearts. Like, but then I found out that Pat Grace, he invented the snack box. He got the KFC licensing. He opened Chicken Hut in Limerick. And there were lines out the door. And that was kind of, uh, it was just very intriguing for me. And I also learned when filming how a snack box was made, which is shown in the film in, in grisly detail. What's your favourite thing about the snack box, Kian? I'm not sure. See, I'm in New York now, so there's a lot of really good fried chicken here. But the thing about a snack box is, you know, you, the, the chips, the chunky chips mixed with the breaded chicken on a Sunday morning I, or Sunday evening, not morning, Jesus Christ. That's that's it's more the vibe than the actual taste. I want to hear this. This this is the next documentary. Like I, we shouldn't put you off doing that one. I think I'll go for it. Definitely do it. <laughs> we'll see about that, lads. You know what I mean. If uh, if the story is there, I'll, I'll tell the story. You know, the game itself could have been. Could have, I mean, the result could have gone more famous, more famously for Limerick. I guess Kay and Des Kennedy, the man you, you spoke to, had a, had an early goal, but uh, sadly, that's not the way it panned out. No, and I don't want to get into it too much just because we have the film, but uh, it, I mean, the game, the guys played the game of their lives and a lot of that was because um, Owen Hand was the coach. They were a League of Ireland winning side back then, you know, for the Champions League. It was an open draw and, and Limerick had won the League of Ireland and that was down to excellent talent, but also excellent coaching and excellent fitness. I think that's what kind of caught Real Madrid off guard from the get-go. It wasn't just... They weren't just a minnow that backed down. They immediately kind of played the game. But, you know, at the end of the day, Madrid's fitness were probably a bit higher. And also there was a dubious penalty decision, which is featured in the film. It's funny, Owen Hand and his relationship with the Irish footballing public, it obviously sours after 
the Ireland job, which is unfair because, you know, he helps build a lot of what Jack Charlton ends up uh, bringing to success. And so he's an interesting character. Kind of this is, in some ways, the peak moments of him that get him the Ireland job eventually. I'd agree with that totally in regards to how, I mean, I wasn't alive back then uh, when Ireland played under own hand, but I would certainly agree that he, he, he built the foundations with the Ireland team, Jack Charlton's Ireland team, and he had them playing really well. And I met Owen and he was, he was really lovely to talk to, but I personally wanted to keep it with the players and have their perspective. Do you know what I mean? But Owen was brilliant to chat to. Yeah. What are you working on now, Keen? At the moment, I'm in New York. Uh, I'm working on a short here in New York. Uh, I don't want to get into it too much, but I that I am thinking of going back into the old fiction, sports fiction. Uh, it's just a case of finding the right story and uh, one that kind of interests me as much as anything. Because if you're not interested in the story, it probably won't be an interesting film. What was the vibe you got, Cian, from from chatting to Limerick people? Like Limerick is obviously a a sporting mecca in Ireland in, in many ways. Like you've you've got the rugby fans, you've got the hurling, and and I, I guess soccer in recent years has taken a back seat but I, I'd imagine the soccer faithful in, in, in the county and in the city particularly uh, are quite loyal 100% and uh, we see that with Treaty you know what I mean Treaty were started in 2021 um, and it's a it's a supporter ran club made in the wake of Limerick FC's demise um, and I think the whole you know I'm, I'm sure you guys have chatted about Treaty before they're currently in the semi-finals of the FAI Cup and and the, the support group behind it is absolutely insane. You know, people want a soccer club in, in their city, in their county. And I was just at a fundraiser for Treaty in New York, Dara Fitzpatrick, which is Kevin's son. He um, he started a fundraiser to get membership going because it is a nonprofit club and to kind of bring people together. And even in New York, there are people who gathered who want to get behind this. And yeah, I mean, their their aim is to just bring soccer to, to Limerick in the Midwest and give young people an opportunity to play and be coached. So that's my answer to that anyway. <laughs> uh, can I just ask you about, uh, you know, somebody who's interested in telling stories. Um, I, I'm interested in, like, so you said you were uh, born in Kerry, went to school in Limerick. Yeah. Is soccer your own first love as a sport? So I, 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 you know, film is my first love. You know what I mean? I used to hate, I grew up in Kerry, which is sport mad. I used to, I, I used to hate football. I won't lie to you. Uh, do you know what I mean? Because I was a film kid. But I got into soccer later in life, to be honest with you, when I was in editing and making films. I, I found myself watching the Champions League in around 2017. And I kind of found a newfound appreciation for the sport in general. And it sounds pretentious, but I was able to kind of see, you know, the opera behind it. So my perspective on on the soccer in this film, that's why there's animation used. I wanted to kind of capture the cinema sport of soccer and the, the almost ballet quality, you know, because I always say my favorite part of a sports game is the ending when uh, when it's a when you see the players and their reactions rather than the goals, you know. I, I look, I totally agree. There was a period where in the GAA, for example, you used to be able to get into the winners and losers dressing rooms after every match. And then they realised that like no other sport's doing this anymore. What they do in soccer is they put everybody in front of a, an advertising hoarding and then you get film yeah. and you get the branding. And um, Now, they still do it in America. In professional sports, you can walk into the locker room and talk to anybody who will talk to you. 
and I think a little bit of the magic is gone but I'm just interested in your perspective as a storyteller about League of Ireland and the stories that exist there and still as a country for whatever reason we're not quite happy to support this league which is our own people who grew up here who played football here who are a representation of our football culture I don't know I don't know if you've thought about that at all if the, if it struck you have, that's yeah I mean <laughs> When I started telling my friends about this uh, this story about when Limerick played Real Madrid, my, my friend from Athlone immediately said, well, actually, Athlone Town played Milan and they beat Milan in 1955. You know, that's just an example of the other history. Um, but even beyond that, you have the football today. I mean, we saw that wonderful Dundalk FC side from a, from a couple of years past. And throughout making it and from meeting the supporters who go to the games every single week, it's a pity that we don't talk about League of Ireland enough and it's a pity that we don't talk about the great history of these clubs that we have and really embrace it, you know, because the best thing about soccer is the communities. It's about coming together and going to the games. And I don't know how you'd fix that. I don't know how you get people going to games or watching games, but there's potential there, do you know what I mean? And there's a potential to bring people together, you know. Well, I think telling the stories of the history is actually going to be an important part of that and getting people to think that they're part of a continuum that has incredible history like the the stuff that you've excavated. So, listen, you've been great with your time. Thanks so much for getting up in the middle of the night. We'll let you go and get some sleep. Um, Congratulations on a great film. Thank you very much. Uh, Can I just say the title? The title is is in reference to Stand Up and Fight, uh, the play about when Munster played the All Blacks. Uh, This is... I decided sit down and shut up would be the Limerick FC version of that. So very good. I'd give a bit of trivia. Yeah. Thank excellent. you very much, guys. Thanks Absolute a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. That is uh, filmmaker Keen O'Connor live from New York. And um, we should have just said as well that uh, we're going to play Sit Down and Shut Up in just a moment. A reminder, uh, Adrian and Ashling are in tomorrow in studio. Premier League back this weekend. Huge games in both North London and Manchester derbies. So Daniel Harris and Martin Lipton are going to preview those. Alan Quinlan will preview the URC and much more of the uh, evolving narratives. He'd already told us that he thought that uh, RG Snyman might not be back um, this side of the November internationals and it looks now like there's uh, no specific date for his return at Munster, so that's not good. Um, Anyway, a couple of quick comments. Powell74 says, Chicken Hut, where all the real action goes on in Limerick at three in the morning. Going for a snack box there could cost you a few teeth and get you a few stitches, but it was worth it. It's always worth it for the chicken. Yeah. Uh, geez, I remember that pack race chicken shop in the 80s, driving to Kerry when you actually had to drive through Limerick City. <laughs> <laughs> uh, pack races, famous fried chicken, best tasting meat on the bone. Was that the... Is that it? I think so. Somebody can correct me on that. Uh, Shifty Lad says inspiring stuff with Katie O'Brien the Galway girl just sending that email to change your life sliding door moments well done Katie great segment lads Mark Farrelly how are you Mark says uh, Kel loves orange soda mm, yeah that was the answer to who loves orange soda uh, the, I'm going to go back and watch that show now uh, after Coolio's passing I think there's going to be a bit of a resurgence for it and maybe for some of his music well Gangsta's Paradise and maybe that's it but yeah bit of a resurgence for the late Coolio uh, Patrick McHugh says I climbed trekked Kilimanjaro hugely underestimated by people it took me four days up one day down I was physically exhausted ascended at midnight got there at 6am first ones to do it that day but that's one thing about Kilimanjaro people do underestimate it because they, they hear of people doing it and I remember even chatting to Stephen Ferris before who did it and like he's a fit man in good shape and he found it very tough um, it's not easy and then anyone under undertaking it I would say prepare for it get the right gear and, and, and certainly do a bit of training so uh, well worth doing though like one of the, the you can't just rock up 
I've seen people who are you know, maybe not might not have the fitness profile of you, yeah. the marathon runner. Well, who um, who just rock up and do it? But no, don't do that. No, definitely not. You, you need a bit of training. And the funny thing is, um, like the altitude is the is the real danger. The the altitude sickness and. Sometimes if you're if you're overweight or not in shape, it can play into your hands. It, like the altitude can affect different people in different ways. Uh, fitness doesn't really play into that, so uh, you can get lucky in terms of the altitude sickness. But uh, yeah, that's that's the real danger. That a lot of people take these tablets, Diamox, to thin the blood before they do it. All right, I, I kind of staved off that and tried to do it naturally, but. Um, yeah, it's it's something not to be underestimated if you do if you just do decide to do it, which a lot of people in Ireland do. You know, a lot of people from from this country seem to to climb it every year. So, uh, JP Wright says, whatever happens with Kenny, he has to be credited with bringing through the youth and believing in them, as opposed to sticking with the dinosaurs. The players will learn from the Armenia game. Koi big, right? And then uh, OTB adores Kenny. Says Will. I never heard them cite. Well, look at the standard of player during McCarthy's last reign. Me McCarthy kept picking outlads. Yeah. He did. Yeah. He was loyal to those players who were, you know, uh, scraping a 1-0 win against Gibraltar. And he he couldn't make Matt Doherty and Seamus Coleman be in the same team because he tried it for half an hour in a gale force win and was like, oh, that's not working, that's a disaster. Like, And then the second half is also a disaster, even though he still didn't do it. Yeah. He barely picked Matt Doherty. Like, <laughs> he just couldn't get his head around the available talent and picking the best players. He needed a big lad up front. And that was it. It was always going to be a big lad up front because, well, that's how football was played in his day. And there's, I, like, this harking back to uh, Mick. The, uh, the divide between Irish fans is really surprising. Well, it doesn't, shouldn't really surprise me, but it, the Kenny in and out seems to be split right down the middle. There's not, like, even in my friend group, it's it's very split down the middle. Um, but but it, which is quite remarkable that that. But as you said yesterday, people are probably entrenched in camps and sticking to them. Yeah, and, and look, that I guess that's how sports fandom works. Aaron McConville says, Chris Houghton was what he had. Or was that your typo? That was his typo, yeah. Chris Houghton is an amalgamation of Ray Houghton and Chris Houghton. There is one of several alternatives as the new Ireland manager. I mean, like, do you... Do you really want Chris Hutton to manage Ireland? Like oh. he's a great fella, like a, yeah. a really important figure in Irish football. But I'm actually not convinced that as an Ireland manager, I don't know. No, we need a we need a proper style of play. Like, like at least Stephen Kenny and, and the lads. You said it a few nights ago on, on the show as well. That no chance he will be our next manager, by the way. Oh, like, okay. Well, yeah, you know, it, the list of candidates who have senior managerial experience and the profile to do the job, but. I don't know. It's a small enough list, but the, but whoever does take the job after Stephen Kenny will have to be thankful for for where he's taken the team. The, the the chimes of positivity, and you heard it from Darrow Shea yesterday after the match as well. That you know the players are fully on board, which is uh, which is half the battle. It doesn't really matter what the rest of us think as long as the players are on board. That's uh, that's all we want. Steve Lane says, "Let's go back to scraping past Gibraltar and championing grindhouse horror draws away to Georgia as fantastic achievements." Then, grindhouse horror draws. <laughs> That's, That's part of our DNA. That is the best description of Irish football for the last decade. Sums it up. That I've seen. Yeah. That Three is. words to sum up Irish football. Sometimes the YouTube comments deliver you diamonds and sometimes they deliver you pig shit. And that was the diamond and a bit of the pig shit side by side. 9.36 this morning. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, please leave a comment in the YouTube stream uh, or you can uh, WhatsApp us 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number. We're back tomorrow. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish your day. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.